I want to make one promise. If I don't come to Canada with that World Wrestling Federation Championship belt, if by hook or by crook I lose, I will never, ever wrestle on American soil ever again. And that is a promise. I'll lay it on the line for you, you piece of trash. I don't like you one bit, but I'll damn sure go to war with you if that's what you want. All you got to do is shake my hand, and we're a tag team. Whoa! Well, I guess well, the man with the personality of a rattlesnake is softening a little bit. Finally, mankind gets what he wants. All mankind ever wanted to be was expected. He don't want a handshake, he wants a hug. I can't believe it. Another moment in the WWF. Mankind. Now, the partner. No! 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 DTA, you stupid piece of trash. Don't ever trust nobody. You've got throw me card. You've got your middle of the card. You've got the top of the card. And then you've got the main event. And I only work one night. And that's the main event. The Undertaker. And let the Hitman hunt for the World Wrestling Federation Championship. And I will be the special referee. You could use a little help, my man, like maybe a tag team partner. What? What's the matter? Don't you recognize me? Now, I don't blame you for not teaming up with that mutilated freak, Mankind, but you never said nothing about teaming up with the hippest cat in the land. Steve-O, baby, it's me, Dude Love, and I am coming to save the day. Oh, have mercy. Bob Bamber and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast going back in the time machine to July of 1997 for volume one of this month's show. For volume two of this month, volume number two takes us to WCW looking at Bash at the Beach. Volume three to your latest ECW action and volume number four when we tape it will be our latest look at the UFC. I'm being joined firstly by Rory McNamara. Rory, hello. Hello. And I couldn't have a 
show about in your house, Caden Stampede, without Jeff Parker. Jeff, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Bob. Uh, Jeff, kick us off with the news. All right, so I'm just going to pull that up. Uh, The Hart Foundation came out on top in the main event of a very well-received pay-per-view in Canada after Owen Hart pinned Steve Austin. The show in front of a white-hot Calgary crowd only featured four matches, all of which got good time. After the main event, the entire extended Hart family, baby faces in Canada and around the world, uh, <laughs> filled the ring. Elsewhere on the show, Mankind and Hunter Hearst Helmsley went to a double countout. The Undertaker defeated Vader, and the great Sasuke defeated Takamichinoku. The buy rate and live attendance revenue for this show were both above expected levels. The show drew approximately 170,000 buys. Sid Vicious has been fired by the WWF following weeks of uncertainty about his fitness and his overall health. Complications following his car crash had left Sid with nerve issues, and his inability to train has seen him drop a serious amount of weight. This was further compounded by what is said to have been an anxiety attack he suffered at Raw on July the 14th, although he did not go to hospital. It's said that the reason for letting him go was more to do with the inability to be able to get a straight answer from him regarding his health and potential availability. Raw will be moving to a 9 to 11 p.m. time slot from next week, which has, be, which has seen WCW follow suit for one week at least by extending Nitro to three hours. The move follows a bumper rating for an hour-long special looking back at some classic SummerSlam moments that aired after Raw on July 14th. It's said, however, that due to rising costs, they will be moving Raw to a fortnightly taping schedule, taping shows on consecutive days. The news comes against the backdrop of potential and quite significant cost-saving measures for the company, despite many business numbers otherwise being quite strong. Ahead of the July 21st show, a number of talents usually flown in weren't, as the WWF used more pre-taped segments than normal. It's even getting to the stage that the WWF are flying talents on different days if the flights are cheaper. The WWF's deal with ECW seems to be falling apart, with any idea of a potential ECW tag team match at SummerSlam off the table. The specifics are a little difficult to pin down, as stories differ between different parties, but it seems like the general attitude of Heyman and ECW's talent didn't seem to do them any favors. There were talks that Heyman would be made an announcer on Shotgun Saturday Night, but how official that was depends on who you listen to. It said Heyman was reluctant reluctant to take the role, one that might see him have to compare Owen and Davey, sorry, I apologize, might have to compare Owen and Bulldog with the Eliminators and, ludicrously, Ken Shamrock with Taz. Plans for SummerSlam next weekend have assembled a card full of stipulations and consequences. Bret Hart will face The Undertaker for the WWF title, with Shawn Michaels as the special guest referee. Bret can't wrestle in America again if he loses, and Sean can't either if he shows bias towards The Undertaker. Steve Austin has vowed to kiss Owen Hart's ass if he loses, and Brian Pillman will have to wear one of Marlena's dresses if he cannot defeat Goldust. Davy Boy Smith will face Ken Shamrock, and Hunter Hurst will face Mankind. Vader vs. Sid was bumped from the card well before Sid's release. From September onwards, all In Your House pay-per-views will be three hours long, the belief being the WWF can charge more money for a longer show. 
Dan Severn of UFC fame has been offered a per date deal, but apparently he's holding out for a downside guarantee. Del Wilkes, aka the Patriot, is in the WWF. Although he has some heat with New J- with All Japan, as he told them he would need six months to recover from elbow surgery, only to turn up on Raw the next week. And it's said that Glenn Jacob, fake Diesel, and Isaac Yankum fame is likely to play the Kane character. The WWF have apparently invested quite a bit in a realistic-looking face mask for the character. And a reminder that we are on Patreon for five bucks a month. If you'd like to say thank you and get early access where possible to our shows, uh, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20 RS. Links in the podcast description and on our website. Onto the ratings for a month. Quite a busy uh, month in that regard. We'll start on July, June the 30th, as Nitro 3.3 to Royals 2.5. On July the 7th tonight, after Canadian Stampede, we ordered a 2.5 to Nitro's 3.4. On July the 14th, the night after Bash at the Beach, Nitro at 3.5 to Rules 2.6. On the week beginning July 21st, Raw did a 4.1 rating, but that was unopposed as Nitro was shifted to Tuesday night. WCW were very happy with the 3.7 rating they got on a, on a fresh night. And on July the 28th, back to normal, at least for this week, Nitro at 3.4 to Rules 2.9. Now, there's no TVs ahead of the pay-per-view, so we're just going to jump straight into the pay-per-view itself. Jeff, you can kick us off with the results. All right, so the show started off with Mankind going to a double countout with Hunter Hearst Helmsley, accompanied by China. Um, it was then the great Sasuke. I, I always call him the great Sasuke. The great Suzuki defeated Takamichi Noku in 10 minutes. The Undertaker, the world champion Undertaker, defeated Vader with Paul Bearer. And in the main event, the Hart Foundation of Brett, Owen, Jim the Anvil Neidhart, the British Bulldog, and Brian Pillman defeated Steve Austin, Ken Shamrock, Goldust and the Road Warriors. Rory, what do you think of this show? I saw this show when it aired three weeks ago and I came away feeling very impressed by it. Good action, good matches, good performances and a real feel-good moment at the end. All good, well and done. Then I read the sheets when they came through at the end of the week talking about this event as some sort of absolute all-time a pay-per-view and I thought, well, I remember liking it but I'm not sure it was that good. I went back and watched it again this very morning, and I'm beginning to see where people are coming from. It's not quite the golden Great American Bash 89 a lot of people are talking about. It isn't far off. In fact, just a little tweak here and a little tweak there, it really could have been. But as it was, a very, very good show indeed. Question out of the gate, Rory. Can you have a great format show? Um, That was my first qualm when I saw the glowing reviews for this, and I was like, if you're only only putting four matches on, you're almost making it a bit easier to have a great show, if you know what I mean. You're lowering the bar of difficulty. uh, If there is such a thing as a great four-match show, then then this was it. Jeff? I'll do you all one better and say it's the best WWF pay-per-view I've ever seen, full stop. Uh, And there's no bias coming from me on that one. Um, I, I think, you know, for a, for a two hour pay-per-view, um, I mean, the very first clash of champions only had five matches. So I think to pull a four match card, um, with a hot crowd is, is completely acceptable, especially when you look at the main event that could have been, you know, three matches with the guys paired off and they wouldn't have had anywhere near the quality or the heat, uh, that they did in the 10 man. Um, I, I, 
could not think of another WWF pay-per-view that came anywhere close to this. It, it was the hottest crowd, I think, since SummerSlam 92. And even then, uh, that wasn't booked for heat like here. And they really didn't have any filler because there were just four matches. So everything came along at a great pace. I loved it. I thought it was uh, the best WWF pay-per-view ever. Yeah, I'm not quite as high as uh, as Jeff and a lot of people seem to be. I thought it was a very good show. Let's be very, very clear about that. And, and, and the main event is is going to be one you'll remember for a long time, just for the you know the the, the, the ballistic and the sustained heat that it that it, that it had uh, throughout. Um, I kind of thought the rest of the car was just fine, um, and, and and that's why I don't think this is an all time show in that. You know, we've rated. We, admittedly, we have rated shows before off the back of very, very good main events. Um, but I don't think this is the best show I've ever seen. Is it the best? Um, WWE, what's What's better for WWF's pay per view run? I'm just curious. I, uh, uh, I can only speak for the stuff I've seen. Um, was WrestleMania 10 better than this show? Uh, I'd have to go back. I mean, WrestleMania 10 had two great. I think WrestleMania 10 had two matches that were better than this main event. It also had two Yokozunas. It had, you know, uh, I don't know. Yeah, but but if WrestleMania 10 was a four match card, would that have been the you know? Was that is that the difference? Was that is, is that the difference? Hot? The crowd, no. the crowd wasn't as hot. I mean, you can't, you cannot say in my, I mean, in my opinion, that WWF has booked a hotter pay per view ever. And as a result, I can't, I can't see WWF ever having done this good before. And admittedly, in the in the timeline that I've seen, <laughs> I can't really, I can't really speak kind of pre mid ninety three. In the timeline that I've seen, the the bar for WWF papers is not that high. Um, there's some good ones, um, and this is right in amongst it. I just don't think this is an all time show. Um, I, I, you know, to compare it to WCW, I have seen better WCW pay-per-views than this. I agree. Uh, I will say, I will I say that. Uh, anyway, a, a slightly weird place to start, but Jeff's, Jeff's viewpoint is very representative of lots of people that I've heard from on the show um, re- regarding how good this show was. So it's it's an interesting place to start, and we'll, you know, it, it kind of does all come down to the main event, but we'll uh, we'll see what happens when we get there. Anyway. The preview says the, w- the world of the WWF isn't black and white anymore. It's a canvas of grey. We're in Calgary, Alberta, Canada with Vince Jr. and King having the call. And what the fuck are they wearing? Jeff, what what, what, what was the the idea of the cowboy hats and everything else? So Am I just missing a stereotype here? No, yeah. Well, I mean, there's something called Stampede Week in Calgary, which is the big festival. And it's, it's very much rodeo-based and a lot of cowboy-esque type things. So I, I guess that the since they were branding it as the Canadian Stampede, they went the cowboy route, which, you know, Jim Ross probably are, <laughs> would have been cool with anyways. And it looks like the festivities that they were doing to promote the show were kind of around that uh, that 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 tone and vibe. So it, it kind of fit in, I, I suppose. It, it's not really the Canada I live in, but uh, that's, you know, kind of five hours away. Okay, at least that was an explanation for it. That's that's all I'll say. King is wearing a preposterously oversized cowboy hat. Uh, we start with Hunter Hearst Helmsley with China versus Mankind. Got it before the bell. Mankind hits a running bulldog, and there's a big cheer. He then goes for a double-arm DDT and mocks Helmsley's pose. Mankind drops an elbow from the apron. Jim Ross makes sure to make the, the connection to his Cactus Jack run. Mankind goes to the second rope and shapes to do something stupid onto the floor, but Helmsley just walks off up the aisleway. Mankind hits a suplex on the ramp He then returns to the ring and starts rocking in a seated position 
Jim Ross calls mankind the minister of parts unknown. We get the block sunset flip into a mandible claw, into a shot from China, spot from King of the Ring. Mankind goes after China, but Hunter recovers and falls right into a gut shot. Motherfucker is my next line as it starts. Helsley whips mankind towards China. China catches him into a smooth cho- 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 slam, scoop slam, and mankind lands leg first onto the ring steps. That looks so fucking smooth. That was excellent. Helsley underpins that with a chair shot and begins working the leg. He then attempts to whip Mankind into the corner, but Mankind's leg gives out. Helsley goes for a figure four. He scoots to the ropes and uses them for a bit of leverage by the dumb ref spot. Second time round, Mankind literally points out the fact it's happening. The ref sees the ropes rattling as if the Ultimate Warrior was stood there on the apron. Still does nothing about it. Finally, third time lucky, he sees what's happening. He boots Undertaker's hands for Undertaker's Hunter's hands from the ropes. Mankind blocks the pedigree. Hunter drives him into the turnbuckle, but Mankind comes off him and then headbutts Helsley in the groin. Helsley gets in a tree of row. Mankind drops an elbow. He then hits a pile driver and both men go drown, down. Mankind gets a cover in for a near fall and some booze. Mankind attempts to hit Hunter with a chair. China blocks it, but while the ref deals with her, Hunter gets a chair sh- shot in himself. Hunter climbs to the top. Mankind falls into the ropes and crotches him. He actually pits in the mandible claw on the top rope, but China cuts him off. We enter the crowd and the bell rings, and I think that's going to be a count out. They keep brawling. Mankind dumps Hunter into the penalty box or in an NHL arena. As is usually the way, Hunter comes out of the penalty box and continues the attack. Rory, what do you think of this? Yeah, this is what we want from this Helmsley fella. My feelings on him are very well documented. My main criticism of him is that he's just so bloody slow and boring. Here, he was actually moving at a proper pace. This was the last five minutes of their King of the Ring match. Put together into 13, 14 minutes of really quite fun action because there was a video package at Ed just before this which made their, <laughs> which made their King of the Ring match look exciting. And it's almost as if that was uh, setting the bar for what we were going to get here and it was excellent. As soon as you dropped the motherfucker there, Bob, I knew you were going to mention our outside Irish whip slam into the stair spot, and that one is going to stay with me for a very long time. These two really brought it. I think Helmsley now realises he can't just saunter around and drop knees all the time. He's got to actually try and get heat, and uh, it's taken him a long time to get there, but he's getting there. Mankind, he'll be able to do this as long as his body says he's able to do it for. He, he, He clearly loves it, let's face it. My only qualm about this well-paced, very hot opener was should there have been a winner here? There didn't need to be a clean winner, but maybe a Mankind count-out victory to at least kind of time up in this series. You can still do the big brawl afterwards, but that's a minor complaint. But yeah, I thought this was uh, really good, perhaps surprisingly so as well. Jeff, what do you think of this opener? Um, I thought the positives outweighed the negatives. I think Mankind really helps Helmsley come across as more tougher and believable by showing he can take punishment um, much better than he did in feuds with Goldust and, and Henry Godwin. I think Mankind really brings out a little more brutality and then the, the, the Helmsley character can develop more into a, a bit more of a threatening uh, heel instead of just a, a blue blood. And I think they have really great chemistry um, in particular, like as long as mankind's going to take those insane bumps, I just, I mean, the match is going to get over. Uh, my negative to it, and I, I mean, it's kind of, I really enjoyed the match. I thought two parts I had issues with were the first. I think China probably gets a little too much offense herself on 
a, like a 300 pound mankind. It, it just, it seems a little too much of a crutch for them right now when they're booking these matches. And I kind of almost feel like mankind gives too much of the match and takes all of these crazy bumps when realistically Helmsley isn't getting the whooping that maybe the fans want. And I think there might be a little better, uh, a match involved where there's some parody and, and mankind takes more because he's, he's, he's doing a great job in helping elevate Helmsley. But I, I just think that, I don't know how it's really benefiting him at times, which isn't really great for the Mankind fan. Yeah, um, this was a, a a fine opening match. It's it's the best Hunter Helmsley match we've seen. Um, it's uh, you know obviously with, with the obvious exception of Mankind versus Shawn Michaels, I don't necessarily know that there have been many other better Mankind matches in the WWF run, unless I'm forgetting something really obvious. Um, they are doing this feud again next month, so the the finish kind of makes sense. Um, Helmsley is starting to get over with this character, with this pairing. I think the pairing is probably more important than the character is. Um, and it seems like, you know, I think we're, we're still in the position at the moment. It helped that it was a hot crowd. The hot crowd helped the entire show, but it certainly helped the first two matches in the, I don't know quite how this would have gone. And we, we saw a similar, I really compare this to the match last month. Was this necessarily all that much better? It is. From, from a pure in-ring standpoint, forget the, forget everything going on outside of the ring in terms of the, the, the fan participation. Probably not. It was just more urgency, more speed, and just more behind it, you know? I mean, that match was nearly 20 minutes. It didn't really need to be. I mean, all people really cared about was who was going to be king of the ring. You could have made that one half the length and squeezed everything in there. This was 12, 13, 14 minutes, and they were able to get everything in, and it just made a lot more sense that they would want to beat each other up. When you consider from a kayfabe perspective that you're in the opening match, you've got a hot crowd. So yes, from a, a moves perspective, was it very different? No, but the feel of it was very different. I was into it. I was enjoying it a lot more. It felt like a match rather than a pun intended coronation, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, I, I think this was the, the best match of their run. I think everyone improved off of the back of it. I mean, China, that, that, that is still kind of the problem. China's doing one thing that's more memorable than the totality of everything Hunter Helms is doing. Um, I know to a point that's, that's not unique to this pairing in terms of the, 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 the heel kind of valet or manager is generally a bit more memorable than the heel in the ring. Um, but fuck me, that scoop slap. Jesus. I mean, that was a, that, that couldn't have gone any better. I mean, at least there was an interview I read in the in the news this month um, with uh, with Mick Foley. And he said, you know, I- I'm a bit worried about my style, but at least I'm picking my spots a little bit better now. I don't necessarily know that that's the case, although at least he's now doing it on nationwide pay-per-view rather than in front of, you know, a thousand people in Philadelphia. Um, but yeah, like if you're going to do the spot, do it in that moment. Um, and they got that just about right. Um, yeah, I think this was a, a good opening match. The best match these two have had. The best match of, probably the best match of Hunter Hurst's career. Um, I suspect we could be saying that quite a bit going forward as he, he keeps kind of pushing that bar up and up. Um, but yeah, like uh, as a, when you've got a crowd like this, you can have a good match. And rather than last month, where the good match kind of got dragged down by booking and by length, this match got dragged up by fan reaction. Um, and we're going to be saying that a lot throughout this show, I think. 
We get an interview with the Hart Foundation that quickly is broken up as Steve Austin arrives. He's being held back and Brett says he doesn't want anything to do with a five-on-one attack. Next up, it's Taka Michinoku versus the great Sasuke. Sasuke. Jeff, how are we pronouncing it? Uh, you know, I've heard people say Sasuke and on commentary they say Sasuke. So I think either's preferred. I don't, I don't know. Either's fine. Yeah, so I think I'm going to go with Sasuke, and oh, well, I inevitably get it wrong, but oh well, who cares. Uh, JR says Michinoku is making his American pay-per-view singles debut. He just about held on to that. I suppose both of these guys from the uh, ECW pay-per-view a couple of months ago. Right, as the match is about to start, we cut into the crowd, and Mankind and Helmsley are fighting again. They're back by the penalty box, and Hunter is bleeding. They eventually bugger off, and the match begins. We start off quite MMA-like, with both men sizing each other up and throwing kicks. Sasuke shapes for an armbar, but can't get it through. Sasuke hits a quick spin kick, then works a chin lock. Taka takes control, working Sasuke's left arm. He then comes off to the top and runs right into a great spin kick on Sasuke. I'd have probably used that for the finish, given how well the cell job was. Taka catches the kick and then sparks out Sasuke with a big open hand punch. He follows that with a low drop kick. He charges at Sasuke and gets jumped on the dumped onto the floor. Sasuke comes off to the top with a high angle kick on the floor. Sasuke hits a series of kicks in the corner, the crowd gasping at the last one. They're really, really rapid. Taka is out cold mid-ring. King says, only stop it if he bites his ear off. At least we've got a good pop culture reference in there from Lawler. Michinoku, who's apparently now absolutely fine, makes a long run-up and hits a springboard crossbody to the floor. Michinoku hits a Hurricane Rana for a near fall. We're following the usual cruiserweight style, where the longer the match goes, the less the guys sell. Sasuke runs into a belly-to-belly and gets sent down by a top-rope drop kick from Michinoku. He hits the Michinoku driver, which is basically a sit-out scoop slam. We miss it picture-in-picture, but Michinoku comes off of the top but gets caught by a drop kick. Sasuke hits a moonsault, then a powerbomb, then it ends quite tamely with an underhook German suplex. Jeff, what do you think of this? Uh, I thought it uh, was a great example of how this this show offered great variety. Uh, both these guys worked their butts off, which was to be expected. Technically, it, it was a really good match. Um, you know, it started out kind of cold because the fans weren't as familiar with these two talents. But as as you saw throughout the match, you know, as they started to do more things and gain more more steam through their various crazy high spots and athleticism, uh, the, the match got over. Um, you know, it was it was your standard, really, really, really good cruiserweight match you'd see in a WCW pay-per-view. I think, uh, you know, they have a long ways to go when it comes to characters because they don't have a, a really mag- magnetic character like a Mysterio, per se. Um, but uh, Sasuke's stuff looks incredible, and, and Taka's finisher, the one thing I noticed was that Michinoku driver, because it almost looks like a botched body slam, the fans seem to always give kind of a cringy pop to it. Um, I really enjoyed the match. Nothing really negative to say about it. It was uh, a very good, light, heavyweight bout. Rory? This was the one match on the card that could have used a few more minutes. Selling issues aside, which I'll get to again in a moment, I, it stuck with me that they did about two or three minutes of their equivalent of technical stuff, i.e. kicking each other in the shins. And then they bust out all the big stuff, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, then five or six minutes later we've gone to the finish. I could have definitely used a bit more build for those who have been a bit more impactful. This match, I think, was exactly 10 minutes long. You take this out to about 13 or 14. You probably add another half mark onto my eventual show mark at the end. But you cannot take away from the, the abilities these guys have, the things they can do and make them look so good. I mean, that 
a jumping sidekick off the top rope to the outside that Sorsgate did. I think it's called a rider kick. That's an incredible move. There's no protection there for you or your opponent whatsoever. You are landing on your own foot, just driving it down from however far, however far up the top turnbuckle is down to the floor. I mean, how anybody can even learn they can do that is beyond me. The moonsault's fantastic. That Michinoku driver, I mean, as, as I think Jeff's absolutely it is a scoop body slam which your opponent is taking on their head. And the crowd absolutely gasped at that one. I don't blame them. But then that also takes me to my issue. My, my one major issue with this match. The crowd gasped at that. They were stunned when Sorsuke kicked out. 25 seconds later, Great Sorsuke's won the match. It, a little bit of... Even if you're not going to out-and-out sell, at least make these things try and feel a little bit more important. I know this is a dance, but come on. But yes, moves are fantastic. I actually quite like Sorsuke's uh, finishing one too. there, Bob. I think the... Uh, the Thunderfire bomb into the Tiger Suplex. I thought that looked uh, looked pretty slick. And from a kayfabe perspective, they're both moves. Uh, they're both moves which your opponent has to take on the upper back. Cause you can see that it's weakening that. But yes, yeah, so great action from two obviously phenomenally talented guys. I'm really glad that WWF are bringing people like this in. But just give them a little bit more time to make things mean just a little bit more. But yeah, great action. Nobody can take that away from them and shouldn't. If I may start from a very, very left-field position before I actually start reviewing this match. Rory, is this what WCW's Mortal Kombat division should have been? How do you mean, Bob? Where are you going with this? As in, the Mortal Kombat stuff should have been about kicks, about strikes, about lack of selling and about speed, right? And about, you know, larger than life, even in a wrestling context. This is it, right? Gotcha, okay. Uh, right down to the fact it had a 10-minute time limit. Like, a lot, of, a lot of games can actually be set to have for, for their round system. Yes, I get what you mean. I thought, I thought I'd start from just while I came into my mind. It, we discuss it a lot on WCW's side anyway. Um, yeah, listeners to this show may not be surprised to th- know or find out, rather, that uh, I wasn't brilliantly high on this. Again, I can appreciate it. There was some excellent stuff. The crowd really got involved, again, which is why my criticism can only be so limited. But it is the, the general stuff. It is the overseas star that we're seeing more and more and more from uh, on, on, on US soil, from Mexico and from Japan and, and, and from elsewhere. Um, in the matches go on for a while and the more they go on the less the guys sell um, there's really really nice moves in the middle that really should just finish matches like the most impressive move of the match happened about three minutes in when Sasuke sparked Michinoku out with a with a sidekick and then they just get back up and carry on it's like okay we've got the pop we've got the near fall now we move on to the next thing um I don't know whether this is going to work in front of an American audience beyond this high spot, poppy type stuff. I don't know what the ceiling is for this, but I don't know that this is a main event money drawing style in the US. Now it's worked in WCW to a point. Um, we haven't really seen it draw, try, attempt to draw money on its own. And certainly you could look at, say, how in the southwest of America, say Texas and that kind of area where Mexican groups have done very, very well, although some of that is just the market. So I'm not, I'm not sitting and saying this style can't draw money. It clearly can. But whether this style is going to be anything more than warm-up, I don't know. Um, these two did really, really well. They came in completely cold in front of an audience that admittedly was, as we saw throughout the show, very, very hot. And they won them over. Some of the stuff was excellent. Let's, let's not be clear. I just think it's one of those things. This is the, 
you know, that we, we saw the, the, the great match on WCW a couple of months ago with Ultimo Dragon. It's a great match because he wrestled Ultimo Dragon's version of a US wrestling match. And these guys are a lot, you know, Dragon's, Dragon's a lot, I believe, a lot more experienced, certainly, than Michinoku. Um, and also a lot more experienced on American soil, so there's a little bit to that. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, it's kind of you know, rinse and repeat on a lot of my insight and criticism for, uh, of this style of match. Jeff, what thoughts on any of that? Well, I definitely agree that it would have actually in my notes uh, uh, a couple more minutes to let this match breathe would have really benefited it, uh, probably taken it from a very good match to a great match. Um, you know, I, I think the cruiserweight division or the light heavyweight division, if you go back to those Super J Cups and, and the stuff from New Japan and, and the Flyers in Mexico, I almost look at it as it's a different division and therefore I, I'm a little more gracious when it comes to the psychology or maybe I'm just I'm so inoculated to the fact that they're going to do a billion high spots and try to get all their stuff in that I'm not as particular as if this were in the main event my my bigger issue is if WWF is going to start a light heavyweight division I'd like to see them actually build around a guy who they can market and sell and whether that's somebody like uh, a a Liger imitation or somebody who's larger than life character that they can put on t-shirts and give to, you know, have the fans buy into. But if it's just going to be a bunch of kind of random foreign talents and Brian Christopher, I, I don't know how far that goes because if you book them just like all the other WWF, you know, mid carters, they're just going to, blend in but if you make them feel special and the high spots and all that crazy car crash garbage um makes them special i can see it as a distinct aspect of a two-hour raw every week roy thoughts on that yeah it's asking a lot of vince mcmahon is because this is entertainment pal but wouldn't it be great if the light heavyweight division it could still obviously take place on raw etc but it was almost treated more than anything else we see on WWF television as a real-life sport with uh, tales of the tape and training-based video packages and tournament branches and round robins and things this, like this that. This sounds like the, the, the least Vincent Mann idea I've ever heard. <laughs> this is entertainment, pal. So, yeah. Oh, and to pick up another one of Jeff's points there, I'm just obviously just pissing in the wind here because, let's be honest, the one person who they're actually giving a storyline to is Brian flipping Christopher. And that storyline is whether or not he's Jerry Lawler's son when everybody knows he is. So we're already not off to the best of starts on this one. Yeah, don't hold your breath on on this one is what I'd say. You know, I uh, I wouldn't want to bet a lot of money on Vince McMahon being able to successfully book a Japanese act to draw money. Um, and I also wouldn't want to bet a lot of money on Vince McMahon being able to book a act under six foot, under 220 pounds to draw a lot of money. And that's kind of where we are right now. Like in the in the Venn diagram, we're missing both circles here. But like this is a negative Venn diagram. Two things that man can't do very well, overlapping. Um, hold my breath on this one for the moment. But, you know, I think it's, you know, we've seen from WCW, and, and WCW took so long to catch up to this. We've seen from WCW how much this kind of, and you know, my criticisms of this and the same, my criticisms of that on the whole. And WCW is by no means perfect in this. In fact, it's a long way from it. Uh, but we've seen in WCW how an influx of this kind of style can lift up the shows, lift up the batting averages of shows, even if much like we 
we suspect WF may not do. WCW have not done a great job in pushing and marketing some of those guys as much as they might think Rey Mysterio is marketable. Booking him in 90 second squash against Kevin Nash is, is what it is. Um, but yeah, I think that's the point is that Vincent Mann, I, you know, I wouldn't want to bet a lot of money on him being able to get this right. And that's probably where I'm at. But that being said, if they keep having matches like this, I know they signed Michinoku to a deal since this. Um, Sasuke is a bit of a different story. Um, if they keep having matches like this, maybe Vince will, you know, the fans keep reacting like this, maybe Vince will start to change the tune. Don't hold your breath. Anyway, Mankind and Hunter are still going at it. They brought backstage by a big yellow school bus. It's light outside. Mankind gets thrown into some beer barrels. They got on top of some pallets. Mankind counters a pedigree into eight back body drop. Roy, what do you think of this? You know, just quickly on the on the Mankind Hunter stuff. Um, you know, kind of filtered through. I, I guess it's one of those things where if you just do the count out and forget about it, people forget about it. But if you do it a few times, people remember it a bit more, and they're a bit more intrigued for a next match. Yeah, exactly. And this is the one thing which made me soften slightly to the fact there wasn't a winner in the match. Um, it does boost their heat going into their what I assume is going to be their blow-off match at SummerSlam. I have no problem with this, and it was pretty stiff stuff as well. Jeff? Yeah, I think it all really helps establish Helmsley as a guy who's not just going to take a powder and run away from a fight, and that makes him, that elevates him as uh, a bigger heel card. Um, otherwise, I mean, if he just if he just begs off when Mankind comes after him, it kind of establishes that he's only willing to go so hard, and this makes him seem tougher, which he needs. We get backstage with Paul Bearer and Vader. They link us back to the match at the Royal Rumble where Vader pinned Undertaker. God, Bearer looks different. No, he's not dyed his hair. Uh, Vader, versus, uh, Vader with Paul Bearer versus the Undertaker for the WWF title is up next. Vader gets scared shitless by Taker's pyro as he's on the ring steps. Taker starts out hard with some strikes. Vader can't keep up as Taker levels him. Taker comes off of the top with a punch. Vader's barely hanging on so far. Vader wears another shot and then tumbles to the floor after a big boot. This makes a change from the previous match they're selling. Vader finally gets a hold of the match, countering an Irish whip and throwing Undertaker into the ring steps. Barrett gets in Taker's face and incessantly calls him a murderer. Taker manages to neutralise Vader and then goes after him. JR, as only JR can, says, Bearer's, Paul Bearer, he's waddling, he's waddling for his life, as Taker runs after him, which I thought was great. Vader runs, Vader recovers and Bearer looks all spuck again. I love how nonchalantly he's calling him a murderer. Vader comes off of the top with a flying something and then a standing splash. Vader rallies with a series of strikes on his knees. The crowd come alive for that. Vader waits, then floors Taker with a clothesline. Taker manages to get up, but Vader just kicks him in the balls in full view of the ref. They attempt the Sid tombstone flip spot, but Vader just kind of falls over. Vader gets an, takes an absolute age setting for the Vader bomb. Taker gets up and hits a low blow, avoiding a second rope choke slam. Corby stunned. I figured that was the match ending, but it wasn't. Vader kicks out. Taker hits a standing choke slam. Vader kicks out of that too. And then, holy fuck, Taker actually manages to get Vader up for the tombstone. And that will do that. Rory. If Vader had had any real chance of winning this match, I would have enjoyed it more than I did. There was a huge sign on the hard camera just before the match began, and it said very simply, Vader Jobs. And it was proof. And yes, you approved right there, mate. Having said that, this was really good, mainly due to the performance of The Undertaker. This was the most motivated I have seen him in any match, not including Mankind. 
possibly in his entire WWF run. He went for everything. He was bombing into that diving clothesline. He was running into big boots when he was hitting them. He was not just ambling ambling across the ring like a wrestling zombie. Here he was a wrestling zombie with a purpose. I want a little thing which the commentators didn't really mention. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I thought this was a great bit of attention to detail. He was almost working like, I never thought I'd, I'd make this comparison, Randy Savage 1987 in the way that he was going for pins off everything in the early going. As if he wanted to get this match done and dusted because A, he wants to retain his belt and B, he might well have other other important things to deal with, with you know, being a murderer and that sort of thing. So I thought that lightness of touch was really good. Yeah, I was disappointed with Vader's uh, performance here. Again, he knew he was losing. He hasn't been booked as a threat. And I don't even think he phoned it in, to be perfectly honest with you. I think on a good day, he would have been able to make that tombstone reversal spot work, but his, his heart clearly wasn't in it. And it was a bit of a clonker. They had the two double choke stamps that didn't win. I think there might have been some improvisation in that. But all that can be forgiven from Undertaker's perspective by the fact he actually did finish with the tombstone. I mean, that's, Vader's got to be the biggest guy he's ever done that move to. And it really looked great as well. So, yes, nobody expected Vader to win this, which took a bit away from it. But uh, congratulations to Undertaker for his performance. Uh, but, yes, Vader needs to sort something out quickly. We, we seem to be saying it a lot, but he's just going down and down and down the pipe all the time. It's, it's sad to see because... They've got something with this guy, but it's been 18 months now that aren't going to be many more second chances. Guys that don't lose, don't win, don't get over, I think is generally the rule. Um, I'm sure it is to a point. Uh, also, congratulations, Rory, for, I think, being the first person in the history of mankind to say he has other things to deal with, like being a murderer. Well, um, think about it. What about Jimmy Snooker, right? Oh. Well, <laughs> That's the second, right. that's the second part you've got that one in as well, Jeff. You mentioned that in the Survivor Series last year. Oh, well, I mean, if it stops being true, I'll stop saying it. <laughs> Jeff, you introduce yourself into the conversation. What do you think of the match? Uh, well, aside from being the second murderer uh, in WWF history, uh, I thought it was a good, solid Haas fight, mostly on account of Taker having his as Meltzer would say, his wrestling shoes on. Um, you know, most of my notes are just lamenting what-ifs with Vader, as, you know, already stated. Like, he's probably never going to be the same guy he was three or five years ago. I- I'm curious how much it is that he's just just completely sold out because WWF has dropped the ball with him and, and he's not in the best of shape. And, uh, you know, doing those moonsaults at his size and the amount of wear and tear on his knees for the last decade has to be held. So he's slowing down, but he also doesn't seem motivated. Um, I would have loved to see this match in 92 maybe. I think that this was a really good Vader match for a, for a WWF standard. But, uh, you know, it, it could have been – it would have been the worst all-Japan heavyweight championship match of the year. But as far as the sliding scale of super heavyweights in WWF, I thought, I thought it was very good. And the hot crowd really helped. And, uh, you know, Taker's tombstone was a surprise, and uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I think Roy touched on a good point, and Jeff, you, you kind of alluded to a lot of stuff behind it as well. Vader's just not a credible challenger for The Undertaker right now, and that feels really weird to say. Like, the, you know, right throughout in WCW, like, Vader was kind of pushed aside once Hogan arrived and 
Flair and Hogan started doing their thing. But WCW just about held it together with Vader. And it partly helped they had the history, because I know they cooled off on it a little bit. But when they reheated Vader for that Hogan feud, probably the last Hogan babyface feud in WCW that drew any kind of money, um, they still remembered how to get it right with it. Um, but WWF had never really done that for a lot of reasons. A few I suspect are Vader's fault, but a lot I think probably aren't. But as they kind of say, if you keep losing matches, you're just not going to get over. And Rory, I can't think of a... Vader's won in his WWF run. Um, I did he technically beat Shawn Michaels at SummerSlam? Um, uh, yeah. The book said he got two wins over him, but, well, it probably is... Probably his only big win was the one against Undertaker at Royal Rumble, really. And even that, and even was, that was forgotten. And, and, and even forgotten that was probably too late over. as well. Even that was a year into his run. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, like I, I've kind of said it before, like, and I would have said this, I think, when we were discussing him in WCW. Like, I don't think you can book Vader any other way. WCW kind of called him off and then just managed to kind of find it again when they needed it. I don't like. I don't think there's not point having Vader around if you're not going to book him as this big monster because he's not really versatile enough. Like Vader's not really a good enough all-round performer to be able to pull off anything else. It's strengthened that there is nobody as good as he is at the role he is best at playing. If he doesn't play that role, he's kind of a waste of space. Um, and him being believable main event fodder, like they brought Shamrock in, they put Shamrock over Vader, which, you know, I wasn't on that show, but at the time I thought, that doesn't actually seem like that bad an idea, they haven't really followed up with Shamrock now, to the point where I wonder whether that would have been better as some kind of fuck finish, um, and yeah, like, you know, you keep putting Vader in matches that you don't want him to win, don't be surprised if he's not over at the end of it, the match was fine, um, the match was, I know better than that, um, you know, it was part of the believability factor, part that, you know, these two guys, you know, this was a big man match, but it wasn't quite the, the, the big man style. This wasn't Vader and the boss from three years ago stay. It wasn't quite like that. Um, and, you know, some things they didn't quite get right, some things didn't quite make sense. But fucking hell, any match where Taylor can lift up a guy who's at least 450 and tombstone him and it looked really good, um, does get a thumbs up from me. Um, Taker wins cleanly, which I suppose is a good point, but it kind of comes back to what I have said and what I'm probably going to say later in the show, which is Taker's in a weird pattern right now. He's feuding with Paul Bearer, yet he's fighting people that aren't Paul Bearer. Um, and part of the reason this didn't work was that Bearer and Vader felt, as much as they've been together for a while, felt like a, just a really, really weird combination. Still, good match, fine. Take a win. Vader is probably a shot horse at this point. I don't think there's any saving him. Um, you know, we, we, you know, I, I talk about baseball trades a lot as I start to get into that. I, you know, I feel like uh, I feel like WWF could could get something from WCW if they offered them Vader back. Um, fuck me, Vader against the NWO could be a hell of a lot of fun. Um, yeah, Bob, if you, Bob, if you think that Shawn Michaels. Wouldn't let Vader go over him. What makes you think the NWO is going to give Vader a shot of daylight there? Well, well, I'm not saying he'd win. I just think the matchup would be a, you know, as a as a drawing card. Like, you know, most of, you know anything in WCW you know, or, or even the WWF can be down to who's not going to win who or who's not going to let the other guy win. I just think that as a prospective pay-per-view draw before match one, before WCW get the opportunity to screw it up, 
I think Vader opposite the NWO could be a hell of a draw. Um, I think that would do a lot more money than anything the WWF could do with him in the next six months. Um, whether 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 WCW will just fuck it up, whether Hogan would go. Yeah, well, you know, because last time, you know, two years ago, they had the issue that both Hogan and Vader had created control to the point and neither of them could beat the other. Uh, now I suspect if Vader was going back, he'd have to play by Hogan's rules, which probably wouldn't work either. Hope Ric Flair's kept the wig then in the dress. Yes. Well, no. Oh, I don't know. Let's move. A good, a good point as any to move on, I think. <laughs> yes. Goldust is given the opening speech from, well, what I guess are the heels. Uh, we get comments from the four of them. We're just waiting for Austin to start, mind. We then get a rendition of O Canada. They're giving it the full beans here with the intro as Stu and Helen Hart get a massive reaction. And it's time for the main event. Yes, only four matches on this card. Goldust, Ken Shenrock, the Legion of Dune, Animal and Hawk, and Stone Cold Steve Austin versus the Hart Foundation of Bret Hart, Owen Hart, the British Bulldog, Brian Pillman, and Jim the Anvil Neidhart. A massive reaction just for Pillman, not even Canadian. Uh, up and down for the next three, but fucking hell does Bret get a hero's reaction. We start with all ten in the ring squaring off. The eight guys clear the ring and just leave it to Austin and Brett, who start out hard. Brett doesn't just stop unloading in the corner, and the crowd go going so hard the camera starts shaking. Austin gets in control to a massive amount of booze. Holy shit, why not just get rid of the other eight, I put in my notes. Austin gets a low blow in, gets Brett in the ropes, then goes for a running attack, but misses to the crowd's delight. In tags Anvil, in tags Shamrock. Anvil ducks a spin kick, which he's giddy at, but Shamrock connects with a second and goes for an ankle lock, only for Pillman to come in and clear it up. I should say, at some point in my notes, I, I lose Owen and Austin disappearing and they'll come back. I, I didn't make a note of it, so you'll have to run around that. Pillman tags in. If Shamrock gets after his ankle, this could be curtains. Pillman sends Shamrock into the corner, then hits a backbreaker. Pillman taps Shamrock's hands on the mat and says he's tapping out, which I thought was really funny. Shamrock hits a throw. Pillman tags in Owen. Shamrock tags in gold dust. Owen hits a backdrop and an enziguri, and there's a massive Austin sucks chant. Hawk goes to the top and it's a big splash for a near fall. Owen locks in the sharpshooter, but apparently didn't see Animal coming. Bulldog tags in and hits a stalling suplex and the crowd are still with it. Bulldog hits a running power slam for a two. In the corner, in comes Brett to face Animal. Animal runs right into a head kick. Goldust ends up in the Heart Foundation corner and everyone piles in until it gets regrouped. Owen charges at Goldust, but he moves and Owen hits the ring post. Owen comes off to the top with a drop kick and then kips up. The crowd are very much alive. Owen shakes for a hurricane runner, but Animal drops him into a power ball and then follows that with a power slam. Owen then gets hit with a doomsday device. Animal breaks it up and all hell breaks loose. Austin goes to hit Owen with a chair around the ring post. He manages it, but Bruce Hart attempts to stop him from the front row. Austin gets hounded into the heart corner. Owen has to be helped to the back. That's when he goes. Pillman gets in what I'll call the heel corner. Austin attempts to pull his trunks down, then hits a stunner. But Brett grabs Austin and wraps his knee around the ring post twice before hitting it with a fire extinguisher. Brett then goes for the turnbuckle figure four, but it gets broken up by Hawk. Animal and Anvil get in a test of strength. Anvil rallies and tags in Brett. We get an old-school Heart Foundation tag team move. Shamrock shapes as something on Brett, wakes an age, and Pillman comes in and floors him with a clothesline. Pillman throws Shamrock into one of the announcers' tables. Shamrock buys some time with a low blow on Bulldog. In, in tags Goldust, who hits a Bulldog on Bulldog. JR says, a Bulldog headlock, if you will. 
Or if you wheel, you kind of left that in a little bit. Bulldog hits a superplex on Goldust. Austin's back. I didn't see him leave. We're back to Austin versus Brett. Austin slams him off of the turnbuckle. Brett sets for a standing sleeper on Austin. Yet again, Austin hits a stunner, not really a stunner to counter it. Brett puts in the sharpshooter, but Animal breaks it up to a big amount of booze. Austin then puts in the sharpshooter on Brett, and here comes Owen to break it up. Austin starts brawling with some of the hearts at ringside in the crowd as the shamrock. Everything kind of comes unloaded. Austin gets thrown back in the ring. Owen rolls it up for a three and a big pop. The ring fills with security, guys. God knows how many hearts are in there. The heart remains triumphant in the ring to a hugely supportive crowd as the Americans, if you like, walk off to the back. Austin jumps back in with a chair. He levels Anvil but gets swamped by everyone. He then gets handcuffed and this is a really good finish to the show. The rings then swarm with people and we finish with seemingly every single heart in the building, in the ring, including Stu and Helen, Helen to coronate the first family of American wrestling. Jeff, I shall give you the floor. Uh, <laughs> I love this match so much, and not just because I'm a Canadian and a diehard Bret Hart fan. Um, it was it was just such a hot made event. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen the WWF book such genuine, real pro wrestling heat since they went national. I mean, everything about the booking of Austin and the booking of, I mean, in particular Bret and Owen uh, was just was just tremendous for me. Um, I really liked how they how they protected Austin with the finish. I mean, he dropped the fall, but between, you know, Bruce and all the hearts interfering and, and, you know, then him coming back to kind of get his heat back with the chair shot and then getting arrested, he comes across as dangerous and unruly, doesn't lose face at all. Um, I mean, really, when you consider that Pillman's ankles shot, Neidhart's never been Luthez, and the Road Warriors <laughs> have also never been Luthez, you're looking at a, at, a, at a tag match with a lot of guys who are severely limited, but the psychology that they told, the story that they told, the guys who could work, especially, you know, Brett and Owen, uh, just did an excellent job. The one thing I really, like my, my favorite part of the whole match outside of uh, the finish, uh, was was the Brett and Shamrock face-offs. Um, I enjoy how they play off each other, and I really like the glimpses of full heel Brett um, against a guy who's so dangerous, like the shooter that Shamrock is. And I hope down the line we get to see that because they seem to have chemistry and something that seems like money for me. Um, even the Road Warriors, especially Hawk, look pretty revitalized and fresh for this match. I mean, age and overexposure hasn't been kind to them, but, uh, you know, for, for the American team, they were a legitimate and threatening force that came in and, and they looked good for, uh, you know, compared to their entire WWF run, or any of their runs, really, um, in WWF. Babyface Goldust is a bit odd because um, it doesn't feel like the fans are going to get behind him, or at least this audience. Um, but I, I thought he, you know, pl- did a rough and gritty babyface job. The trolling of Dusty isn't necessarily uh, leading anywhere, I don't think, because Dustin and Dusty don't seem to be on the best terms, and Vince and Dusty certainly are on the best terms. But, uh, you know, as Austin's partner uh, with the U.S. and Canada feud, it, it, it was okay. Overall, the match was just a hot, excellent pro wrestling match that WWF has never really accomplished. Uh, it felt like an old-school territorial uh, main event. It was awesome. Maybe Dusty's one of the pieces they could get back in the Vader trade. Um, or maybe not. Are we doing pound for pound here, Bob? Um, no, I wasn't thinking like that. Um, I, I think WCW would get you a very large end of that deal if they got Vader on that. Uh, Rory, your thoughts on the main event? 
In your notes there, Bob, you mentioned one of the thoughts that I had in the first minute of this match, which was, why can't we just get rid of the other eight and do Austin Brett one more time? When Austin was stomping stomping the mud hole in Brett in the corner and the crowd were booing the ever-loving hell out of him and he's giving him the finger, I'm thinking, yeah, I could go this particular matchup just one more time. But a minute after that, we see Brian Pillman, Brian Pillman being cheered into the ring, getting a one count on Ken Shamrock, sticking his hand down on the mat saying he's tapping out, he's tapping out. Then all my fears were laid at that point. And I loved every last second of every one of these 24 minutes. This was an, a cavalcade of, as Jeff has said, a real pro wrestling match from a non-real pro wrestling company. With it must be said, at least three people in it who you would really struggle to call pro wrestlers of any real great renown. It was wonderful. Every combination they had, everybody had to go against everybody. And nobody... Well, at the very least, nobody messed anything up. But there were some fantastic exchanges. I thought the Owen Golder stuff was really good. I say Pillman was actually getting himself around the ring for the first time in a first time in a while. Animals power slams were looking decent. Everyone was just on for this match. They were energized so much by. In fact, it's almost an understatement and an insult to call it a hot crowd. This crowd were living every last second of what they were being treated to. It was a. It was. An absolute pleasure to be some very, very small part of it. The 24 minutes absolutely flew by. I couldn't believe that's how long the match was. It barely felt like 10. Uh, there's no point picking out any individual spots because we'll be here forever. Just I'll just implore everybody when they finish listening to this, of course, go away and watch this match if they haven't. A comment into a question, into a point for you two guys here now. The way that the match finished with Austin being beaten up by some of the hearts with uh, Bruce making sure to get himself front and centre on camera, of course. <laughs> and, then, and then Owen catching himself, uh, catching Austin with a fairly quick roll-up, which was almost missed by the crowd. They just got back into it, save a two-count to give, as you said, Bob, that massive pop. Should there have been a slightly more decisive finish there in an ideal world, or do we think a roll-up to keep the Owen-Austin uh, Owen thing rolling was enough? Just briefly, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, Jeff. Jeff I've, got, I've got my own opinions, but Jeff, take that. Um, I, I just think you have to protect your biggest star, and I think yeah. into the future that's Austin. And it's not as though Owen's the number one guy in the company. If it were Brett or Sean taking that pin, I, I could see it maybe having to be a bit more decisive. But uh, the, the other thing about the, the, the pinfall is it really invigorates reinvigorates Owen, who I think is maybe the freshest he's been since the Brett feud in 94. So, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, I could have been cool. I would have been cool with the, with Owen going over a little cleaner, but I think you want to protect your your money maker and that's that's austin yeah, great. Just, 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 yeah, just very quick i love the um uh, one more thing i want to say about this match owen hart as a owen hart as a pure babyface hero i was smiling from ear to ear when he um hits a hits a drop kick kips up and he does the gene the crowd up babyface thing I thought owen you've been waiting to do this for years mate and now you've got your chance to run with it yeah so many feel-good moments from this match absolutely wonderful everybody brought their equivalent of their absolute best and it was a joy and a privilege to be a part of it take it pop yeah i thought the finish was just about perfect um you know in the in the in the in the setting the the canadians 
the baby faces, which I suppose we have to call them, had to win. Um, it couldn't be decisive, but it needed to be decisive in some kind of way, shape or form. And I think the pinfall had to be on Austin. Because I think anyone else, it would have felt like a bit of a cop-out. Oh, we won the match, we didn't get the guy. Um, I thought the finish was... I don't think you could improve on that in terms of how they executed it. It was a, it was a, you know, it was a finish that kind of protected Austin and that he was trying to fight off everyone else. Um, I don't think Brett should have pinned him. I think I was the right guy, also going into their match next month. Um, yeah, I thought the finish was just about perfect. The match was a lot of fun. Um, you know, anytime a crowd is into a wrestling match this much. And it's infrequent. The match is always generally really, really good. Like, you know, we've seen matches previously where, you know, sometimes, you know, look at... I make a weird comparison, but to a, to a small degree, look at what happened in WCW this month, where the crowd were really into Dennis Rodman, even though he didn't do anything. The match is still lifted up because everyone's on the edge of their seat waiting to work out what happened. Now, I'm going to move that comparison aside because it doesn't really hold up otherwise um but the crowd were into everything here um you know Rory you said there's at least three guys in this match that you could barely call wrestlers I had about five names written down when you said that which isn't the best sign um but there's uh there's guys in this match that do not belong on the stage. Goldust is one. The Legion of Doom probably are an, another two at this point. Jim the Anvil, Neidhart, as we kind of saw later in the month, is a complete shot horse. I don't particularly think Brian Pillman belongs on this stage either anymore, given his ankle problems. In a, as a, from a working perspective, he's probably the most entertaining guy there, along with Austin. Um, but yeah, and Shanlock's a guy who I don't think they're presenting quite right yet either. I think Owen and Bulldog have their own limitations. This was a, an excellent match involving a lot of guys that, or even without a couple of the parts, couldn't get anywhere close. Um, it was really entertaining. Normal stuff felt really good just because of the amount of heat. Um, and yeah, I thought the, 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 the way that the finish happened and the way they presented what happened afterwards, I don't think there's a single misstep they made. The right guy won the match, the right guy lost the match, um, and it was a, a great love. It was just bizarre, though. Like, this, this like, you know, and this is this is a really weird storyline. Jeff, have we ever seen, uh, you know, you're the guy that can answer this question. Has there ever been a storyline like this where... There aren't really baby faces and the heels. It's just more there's kind of teams, fans A and fans of B, depending on where you're at. This has got kind of a, I know it's a, a, a national thing. This has got kind of like a sports feel to it in terms of there's fans of team A and fans of team B. And if you're at the home of team A, team A are the guys that get cheered. If you're home of team B, America, they're the guys that get cheered. Have we ever seen anything quite like this? Yeah, uh, what you have is the Funks and the Briscoes. Uh, the Funks were over huge in, in Texas, and the Briscoes were over huge with uh, Eddie Graham's territory in Florida. So when they'd work, and of course, you know, three of those four guys ended up being NWA world champions. So, and a lot of the time, the other the brother would be the setup guy. So uh, if you were working in Texas, the Texas crowd would be for the Funks and the Briscoes would work heel. Then they go to Florida, and the Briscoes would be baby faces. Same match. And the Funks would work heels. So that would probably be the closest thing I could think of. Um, oh, and uh, probably the stuff that uh, 
Vince had done a couple years ago with Lawler's promotion done in Memphis where Brett and those guys were heels and Lawler was the baby face where, you know, every week on Monday night it was the opposite. Yeah, to a, to a much more degree, I suppose. But yeah, I, I just think it's it, it, like, you know, it's, it's you know, I, I guess a different, to, to, to come back to, to the Briscoe and the Funk thing, I'm guessing it wasn't featured on the same television program every week. I'm guessing it was more of a case of when we're in this place, these guys get cheered. When we're in this place, these guys get cheered. But in this case now, it's more like, well, Raw, one week's in Canada. These are the good guys. Next week, you're watching the same television program. Now we're in a different place. Now they're getting booed. Um, Jeff, I guess that's the, the one of the discrepancies. Yeah, I mean, I, I again, there's not... There's not really a template for that. I mean, you could point to certain guys who were over in certain territories. I think Hogan's WCW babyface run, he was certainly booed a lot, and Flair was cheered a lot, but uh, it wasn't uh, as as vocal as as these weeks have been, and this you know couple of of big shows. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely. I mean, they always say Bizarro Land and all that stuff when it comes to Canada. I've been to a lot of WWF house shows and tapings and pay-per-views. And there's always kind of a, a predisposition to cheer for the heels. Um, so I, I, I think a lot of it is nationalistic, but I have, I have over the last, you know, decades, a lot of the time the baby face doesn't get the traditional reaction. So uh, maybe it's just us. Jeff, let, let, let's continue a little bit of the discussion we had at the top this show, this match, how, how how do we rate it? How does it compare this year, this this run we've had on the show, WF going back, wrestling in North America? At what point does this match and show top out? If we're going to start calling it, you know, one of the great matches and one of the great cards, where does it stack in that line? Um, for me, I think uh, it's the best overall WWF pay-per-view ever for me. Uh the only ones I can really think of was there was a SummerSlam with a really hot Philly crowd in 1990, uh, and then the Wembley card uh, at SummerSlam 92. But I felt that for me, being Canadian and being a diehard Bret Hart fan, this one gave me goosebumps from the start. Uh, obviously, there have been better WCW pay-per-views with just far superior top-to-bottom work and a lot more matches of, of higher quality, but... If we're grading on the WWF curve, I thought this was the best pay-per-view they'd ever put on. Um, there are a lot of WCW pay-per-views I'd put ahead of this one, but this was this was a distinctively un-WWF, WWF pay-per-view, and that's why I, I think it it gets my two thumbs up. Roy, you didn't, you didn't quite say the same thing at the top, but, but to answer the same question, also important, the same thing? Yeah, it's... It, it probably is almost certainly, by default, one of the WWF's finest pay-per-views. I mean, I would, like you, I'd throw WrestleMania 10 in there because that had two, quite simply, two five-star matches. And even the rubbishy stuff in there was serviceable and was and was a reason. Again, you had a great ending to the show as well, which I think is important. Uh, Jeff, I get your thoughts on this one. Surely WrestleMania 3 deserves at least a mention here because that was Vince's vision made large from top to bottom, wasn't it? From, okay, from a work rate perspective, it wasn't very much, and less said about the main event in that respect, the better. But that was the WWF in excelsis, in my opinion, surely. I mean, from a business perspective, I guess you could point to WrestleMania 3 or even WrestleMania 6 at Skydome, where they did huge business. Um, 
But as an entertainment value, I, I don't think they've ever booked this good of pro wrestling. Um, yeah, that was Vince, uh, WrestleMania 3 was Vince's, you know, it was his, you know, watermark, what he wanted to do and, and you know, plateauing or plateauing, uh, crescendoing with uh, Hogan and Andre. But, um, I mean, if you go back and watch that card now, even, you know, neglecting a work rate, just the pace and the everything, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fair show. I mean, it's it's not. There's no heat to it, though. Yeah, it's you know I can you know we are just about up to the four year mark of this show uh, next month. Fuck, um, I can only really speak to to, to the timeline I've covered. Um, yeah, as I say, it's it's difficult, right? Because if you have a you know. We're basically saying this is a better show than WrestleMania 10 because WrestleMania 10 had like nine matches on it and this had four. Um, and it's like, well, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine dragged WrestleMania 10 down, and you know, it's a it's a fair point to make. Um, but I don't know that this main event was all that close to the two matches on that card. Certainly not the ladder match. Um, but yes, in terms of the four years we've covered, WWF traditionally have had shows with very good main events. Go back to last year, there was a lot of them, but with undercards that kind of blew. And so it was like, well, good main event, but it had to drag the card up, which is why this stands out in that the undercard, I think, was fine. I don't know if it's any better than fine. Um, I don't know that you put any of those first three matches on a WCW card and they stand out. Um, but that's, you know, we're grading on a, WWF curve here, um, Jeff. The, the the same question, but regarding the match itself, how does how does the match compare? Um, I mean, it's a Bret Hart match, right? So it's five stars right off the bat. Okay. Um, but, Sorry, uh, you know, I'll, I'll agree. I I think the WrestleMania match with Owen is the superior match. I think the SummerSlam match with Owen is the superior match. This probably doesn't even rank in my top ten favorite Bret Hart WWF matches. Um, with that being said, it's probably the hottest match Bret Hart's ever worked in the WWF, and that should count for something. I think if you look at, he's working with the bum knee, he's carrying, you know, Pillman and, and Neidhart and even Davey, you know, guys who aren't necessarily loaded with main event level uh, talent at this point. No offense to Pillman, but it's he's he's pretty shot. Um, and he's, he's carrying this on his own and he's, he's basically said, you know, Canada, jump on my back. I'll be your hero. And it, it just, it all, the storyline and the texture is so rich for pro wrestling that I, I think the, the, the story and the narrative is what brings it up to a top tier level as an, as an in-ring match. Yeah. It's, it's not the best Bret Hart match I've ever seen technically, but for Heat-wise, I think it might really be, uh, if only tied for that uh, SummerSlam cage match where they had a lot of high drama. Roy, stand question? I seem to remember Brett having a fairly decent match with that Steve Austin guy a few months ago. My memory might be a bit hazy on that one. I think we did a podcast on that one, and some bloke said it was one of the greatest matches he'd ever seen. I, I, I could be wrong. <laughs> Facetious hat off. This match is absolutely right up there. It just goes to show that to have a great wrestling match... You don't necessarily need to be able to just throw a, a million moves in 20 minutes and to, to rack up the snowflakes. If you can do your normal stuff, your normal stuff has a purpose, has a meaning, and you've got dance partners there who are clicking off you, and you've got a crowd who are behind your every move, in a very literal sense, literal every move, you're 
half the job is done. And I, I knew this match was going to be good after about five minutes. And the fact that they managed to keep it going, no matter who was actually in there for 24. So it took you five minutes? It was five. <laughs> I've said before, my, my, my timings are a bit skewed on this, but the match itself felt about five minutes long, in a good way. Um, <laughs> uh, train of thought, train of thought. Uh, I think what you need to look at here with this, the reason I've ranked this so highly is because of who was in there. Who thought at the start of this year that they'd be talking about Jim Neidhart and Animal in one of the greatest matches of the year? If you did, you're a liar, or you, you need to really have a word with somebody, you know. Yes, um, this will always, because like I said, it was another just, just three, weeks, uh, three weeks hence, this is always going to be one of my most favourite matches I've ever seen. It was... An emotional roller coaster with a perfect, perfect ending. I mean, that, that final shot when the camera panned and you've got the ring full of various Hart family members. You know, th- that really is, as they say, roll credits on that, you know. Roy, overall thoughts on the show and a score rating out of 10. Uh, choose my great American Bash 89 and IG again from earlier. I, it ties me to what, what I just said. One of the things that made that pay-per-view so great, elevated it from great to magnificent, was the very end, where you had Flair with Sting and Muta and Funk beating the merry hell out of each other all over the arena whilst JR was trying to wrap up at the end. This was very similar with Austin trying to get back in with the, with the chair and then the entire Hart family jumping on him for a pile-on when he's finally dealt with, all the Hart family can celebrate. That alone is worth many, many points for this particular event. If you maybe book a winner in the first match, if you give Michinoka B. Sorsuke four or five more minutes, if you spend the month of June making Vader look like a credible threat to the WWF title... Well, and May and April and... <laughs> June 1996 and January 96 yeah. all of the, all of those and keep everything that happened in the main event exactly as it was I struggle not to give this one the big 10 as it is voted commas only giving it an 8 but 8 for me equals excellent and it is everybody a must watch from start to finish even if you only have, say, a spare half an hour, then go out of your way to watch the main event. But you need to watch the whole thing. Eight out of ten. And it can be very... Oh, okay. no, the first three matches are not must-watch. There's, there's, no, no, there's, no, 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 this is the point. They're not, not must-watch, Bob. If they were, I would have given it a higher score. What I'm saying is they do work as feed-ins for the main event, help right. by, as we said so often throughout this discussion, uh, a rapidly hot crowd. Just I stand by my score, and it's an eight out of ten. Jeff? Um, it's not a 10 out of 10, in my opinion. It is very close, though. I think the Sasuke-Taka match with a few more minutes elevates the whole show uh, as far as work rate goes. I think the protection and booking of Vader for the last however many years within WWF elevates that match. Uh, However, I can't think of a hotter show that I've seen, even with the best WCW pay-per-views, a crowd this rabid and hot, where, again, the camera's shaking, there's so much heat. It felt like a Mid-South, you know, Bill Watts versus the Midnights, where it didn't matter how great the in-ring work was, the heat was already there, and they'd already paid the tickets to see the heels get beat. Uh, It just so happens that the heels were the good guys, and the 
the good guys, of course, were the good guys because Bret Hart's always a good guy. But um, you know, I I I loved everything about the placement of the matches. They had the brawl to start, then they had the flyers, then they had the Hoss fight, then they had you know the ten man, which realistically could go down as the best. You know, they've had how many Survivor Series? This is better than any Survivor Series match they've booked in almost a decade. Um, I, I'd say nine point five out of ten. Really, I, I can't. I can't put this card over enough. I loved it. No, I, I, I'll sit in the middle. Of Rory, I was quite surprised after all your glowing praise that you only went for an eight. Um, we've we've definitely seen shows that aren't as good as this given the high scores. So I guess it's only four matches. I'll go to eight and a half. Um, this is a, a a fine undercard. WWF standards, a very very good undercard. Um, and then a main event that's just. A main event, the likes of which we never, we might never see for the next two years. You know, in terms of drama, in terms of crowd participation, in terms of pace, like the actual match. It's not a great match. It's just a match that people really care about, and that's really the important thing. Um, and I thought the finish. We haven't really spoken about the finish and the closing angle. I thought they really got right. Uh, so yeah, I'll give the show an eight and a half. We're in Edmonton, Alberta for the first roar of the month as JR welcomes us to a sea of patriotism. Opening segment sees Vince interviewing Brett, who's wearing an Oilers jersey. We learn that Brett will be facing Undertaker for the title at SummerSlam. He thanks Canada for letting him still be their hero. He isn't so much anti-American as he is just very, very pro-Canadian. He will not let his Canadian fans down in the SummerSlam. If he doesn't win the belt there, he will never wrestle on American soil again. Owen and Davey join us as Brett invites us all to look at the screen and listen to this. It's the Canadian National Anthem. As it plays, Austin attacks the foundation from behind with a chair. After a break, Vince publicly apologises for Stone Cold's actions. We get a rematch from last night between Taka Michinoku and Sasuke. It's a messy one, including Taka badly botching an acai moonsault. Sasuke wins with the Thunder Firebomb. After a lengthy recap video of their recent travails, here's Savio Vega versus Crush. Thankfully, you only get a couple of minutes of it before DOA and the Bariquas get involved with the DQ. The Disciples come out on top in the post-match melee. Vince talks to Paul Bearer, who is backstage. Bearer is non-apologetic. We should believe, Paul, that Kane is alive, because Kane told him so. The only hope that Kane has is that one day he will come face to face with his evil brother. The Nation take on Owen and Bulldog in our tag team tournament finale. As Austin says, he doesn't care who wins. Surprise, surprise. Both factions brawl outside, including Pillman attacking the Nation with a Union flag. But Owen comes out, hops back in to beat the 10 count. Afterwards, Mankind comes out wearing an Austin 316 shirt. He still wants to team up with him next week. In a battle of the last two kings of the ring, Austin is up against Helmsley. Hunter grabs a chair, but Mankind makes a save by taking a shot right to the head. Stone Cold hits the stunner for the win. Austin takes the mic and tells Mankind to get in the ring. Austin doesn't like him, but he will go to war with him. Austin and Mankind hug. Then Stone Cold gives him a stunner. DTA, you stupid piece of trash. You ain't never gonna be my partner. Mankind then manages to get the mic. Next week, he's going to have to do something he never thought he'd have to do again. Brian Christopher defeats the debuting Eric Shelley with the Alabama Jam. Lawler then comes in and helps Christopher hit a spike pile driver. 
Austin is back again. Vincent admonishes him over his hand gestures from yesterday. Austin isn't bothered though, because he can put his fingers where he wants when he wants. He'll be facing Iron for the IC title at SummerSlam. Austin says that if he can't beat him, then he will kiss his ass. Our main event is Brett versus Goldust. It's the average TV fair until the DOA ride down to ringside and the foundation follow. The LOD and Shamrock will join out as well and then Austin looks on from the curtain. Brett hooks the leg on Goldust Sunset Flip and gets the victory. Foundation celebrate in the ring and amazingly, nobody runs in. Congratulations are in order. Hello there, eh? First of all, I just want to say thank you for letting me still be your hero. I thank you for believing in me. A few weeks ago, I was told, America, love it or leave it. Well, I've traveled all around the world. I've been all over the United States of America. And the one thing that I've in particular looked forward to is loving, leaving it. I want everybody to understand that nobody is more proud of being Canadian than I am. And I'm not really sure how things have escalated, but the one thing, I'm not so much anti-American as I'm just very, very pro-Canadian. Americans think that they're always better than us. They think they're better than everyone. But all you have to do is look at Donovan Bailey and you realize that they're not as great as they think they are. America. For me, Canada is a country where we still take care of the sick and the old, where we still have health care. We got gun control. We don't shoot each other and kill each other on every street corner. Yeah. Canada isn't riddled with racial prejudice and hatred. Across Canada, we all care for each other. And I am proud to be Canadian. And I am proud to be your hero. And I promise that I'll continue to live up to trying to do my best and to keep my word. And there's one promise that in particular that I want to make, and that promise is, in the SummerSlam, in America, when I step in the ring with the World Wrestling Federation Champion, The Undertaker, that I will not let my Canadian fans down, and I will be the World Wrestling Federation
Federation champion for a fifth time. I want to make one promise. If I don't come to Canada with that World Wrestling Federation Championship belt, if by hook or by crook I lose, I will never ever wrestle on American soil ever again. And that is a promise. There's a fair amount of TV going on, obviously four weeks following the pay-per-view, go through to the end of the month. Um, we'll, we'll kind of have a, a slightly more general wrap-up at the end if there's anything beyond the, the headlines that we're going to go through show by show. Um, but the, there was really one main story stitched throughout all of this, um, and it's not yet leading to a match anyway, although we're getting closer, um, which essentially is Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Um, we start on show number one in, uh, in Edmonton, I believe, um, with... Brett and the other members of the Hart Foundation, or Brett introducing Owen and, uh, and Bulldog, but all, all wearing Oilers shirts because, you know, they needed cheap heat, right? Um, or, or, or cheap pop, anyway. Um, and Rory, I think for, for this promo at least, um, there's, there's some other things to be said about the promo Brett cuts at the end of the month. Um, this was these three guys in their element, I think, wasn't it? And we talk about a a good match being elevated by a great crowd. I kind of wonder whether this was a good promo elevated by a great crowd, um, but it certainly helps three guys that aren't always massively confident on the mic. Exactly. This is one of the things I really do like about this whole Heart Foundation versus USA angle, because it does give the Heart Foundation, and many Britain in particular, of course, the chance just to say how much they love where they're from and their countrymen and their people and their landscapes and their beer and their women. And one of my favourite ones, and Brett, how their money actually looks, because that's important as well. Uh, I, I thought this was uh, this was really nice. It was just this was Brett speaking from oh yes, the heart. There was one clunky moment in this when he said, um, "I've been told America love it or leave it. The one thing I've been doing is loving leaving it." Okay, Brett, that doesn't really work, but never mind. But yeah, I thought this was great, and as you say, as if the Edmonton crowd needed to be whipped into any more of a fervour. They were tenfold anyway. So yeah, I thought this was uh, I thought this was lovely stuff. Jeff? Yeah, I think this Brett pseudo-heel character, I mean, he's the ultimate babyface in Canada, um, but this, this character is him finding his premium comfort level on the mic. I just, everything he says, first of all, the Brett heel character is based in conviction, right? Like he's, he truly believes what he's saying is the right and that, you know, the WWF has gone rogue and has gone the way of the R rating and, you know, a bunch of guys swearing and inappropriate things. He believes he's the one that's that's vindicated here. Um, so everything he says kind of has an earnestness and a truth to it. And that's kind of why he comes across as a great heel in the States because it's like, well, you know, some of the stuff he's saying isn't necessarily that far off from the truth. And in Canada, he can really be a bit cocky and, and smirk and talk about all the great things that makes Canada great, um, which are pretty much all true. Um, and, and again, he has this comfort zone that I don't think he's ever had as a baby face. And he's got a swagger to him that just he's come into his own as this character. I love it. It elevates Owen especially. It makes him feel like a bigger deal. Uh, even though maybe it's Owen was coasting as a, as a tag for the last two or three years, but I feel like this is premium Brett 
and I I loved every second of it. Yeah, um, it's it's Bret Hart, you know, being the, the yeah, it's Bret Hart. We're going to talk about his promos later on and how they can kind of fall down where um where where it's not working very well. Um, but this was Bret, you know, I, I think we've seen it with his stuff with Sean previously. It's that when you get the feeling Brett's talking from the heart, and when you get the feeling Brett's talking from a position that he honestly feels, his promos are generally pretty watertight. Doesn't always express them brilliantly well, but generally his points are very coherent. And his his anti USA pro Canada stuff, on the whole, is 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 probably what he feels. The stuff about healthcare and you know, really random things like that, you know. That's just the more. That's something he would have picked up on, having kind of lived and worked in, in uh, in the in America for so many years. That always makes sense, and you couple it with a, a receptive crowd and with a with a storyline that's pretty damn hot on the whole. Um, and this is Brett exactly where you want him to be. Um, and I think you know he's able to introduce Owen, and Owen gets a great pop, and Owen's not a great promo either, but he can kind of survive in this kind of environment. Bulldog's not a pro great promoter either but he gets the the pot by association um there's where there's a safety net and where there's a lot of crowd support brett is fine uh what i think is going to be interesting and we'll we'll kind of see this as we get to it later in the month is that when it doesn't quite work the same promo doesn't quite look as good but we'll uh we'll get there later in the month We're up and off on the 14th of the Hart Foundation receiving exactly the kind of reaction you would expect from a crowd in San Antonio. We discover some more matches and stipulations for the SummerSlam. If Bulldog loses to Shamrock, he will eat a can of dog food. If Paul Pillman is unsuccessful against Goldust, he will get into Marlena's dress. And if any of the Hearts lose, then Neidhart will shave off his goatee. That kind of all fell apart in the next few weeks. Austin's music interrupts as Old Glory appears on the Titan Tron and he's joined on the ramp by Shamrock, the debuting Patriot and Sid, and then of course HBK. Will one of these men be to Austin's tag team partner later on? First match pits the Putski family versus Lawler and Christopher. King had it won with a pile driver, but Christopher wants to tag. This, of course, leads to them being defeated when Ivan hits Jerry with the Polish hammer. Mankind joins us from the boiler room, but he has no further comment on his words from last week. Big Japan Pro Wrestling's Tajiri Yoshihiro is up against Taka Minchinyoku. Tajiri in particular looks excellent here, but Taka wins with the Minchinyoku driver. Shamrock joins us for a quick word. He confirms he's not Austin's partner, but he's in action against Anvil later tonight. The Headbangers have a match against Miguel and Jose of Los Bariquas. Miguel pins Thrasher with a sort of victory roll. They exist solely so the DOA can ride down and beat up Savio and co. We hear from the Patriot, continuing the current theme. He's also not here to team up with Austin. He's in the WWF to defend the USA from those who seek to destroy her. Vince introduces HBK, who gets the returning hometown hero pop everyone was hoping for. He may or may not be Austin's partner later, but it's up to Stone Cold. As regards my friend and yours, Bret Hart, he can't wait to see him get his ass out of America for good. 
Not for the first time this year, Sean asked the boss man if he can make an appearance at a big pay-per-view. This is despite Michaels being all too aware that he is a dirty, rotten employee. This laughs a little too hard at that. JR is sure that HBK will be part of SummerSlam, and it's probably fair to say he's right. Our number two begins with Savio Vega grabbing a camera to get footage backstage of a terrible accident. Turns out the Barikas are destroying a DOA bike. Disciples show up and try to administer a bit of citizen's justice, but the Barikas escape in their car and drag the motorcycle behind them. Shamrock defeats Anvil with a standing sleeper hold. Bulldog runs out and they give Ken a beating until the Patriot makes the save. The LOD are ready to face the new Blackjacks, but the Godwins attack them from behind. Hawk bleeds Headley from the back of his head and the match never takes place. Vader vs Flash Funk is next. At one point, JR just about stops himself calling Funk too cold Scorpio. Flash gets a lot of offence here, but eventually fails, falls victim to a powerbomb and a Vader bomb. Austin talks to us backstage. Neither Mankind or HBK will be his partner, but there's no way he's leaving San Antonio without the belts. Our main event is indeed Owen and Bulldog going for the tag titles. Austin emerges alone and the match begins with him taking on both men. Before the break we see the feet of Austin's partner walking backstage. As we return the ring is cleared save for Stone Cold who's alone when the Titan Tron and his tag team partner appears. It might be Mick Foley but tonight he isn't mankind. He's the hippest cat in the land. He's dude love. He struts his stuff, sort of, about as well as Mick Foley can do, given his knees, down to the ring and disco theme, and he has the audacity to wave at Stone Cold as he does so. Austin's facial expressions are absolutely brilliant here. The Doolies officially gets tagged in and puts the mandible claw on Davey. Iron breaks it up with a drop kick, but Austin stuns Bulldog. Dude goes to the pin and gets the three count. He tries to present his belt to Austin as some, some dude love groupies enter the ring, but Austin hands it to Dude and then shakes his hand. Dude and his ladies dance as we go off the air. The million dollar question. Is the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels going to once again be the partner of Stone Cold Steve Austin and become the World Wrestling Federation Tag Team Champions again right here in my hometown of San Antonio, Texas? Well, it is no secret to everybody in the wrestling world that I am not 100%, but the last time that Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels tagged up and became the World Wrestling Federation Tag Team Champions, neither one of us was 100%, so believe me, I'm good enough to go right now. But that is up to Stone Cold Steve Austin. Now, as I've been sitting home the last couple weeks in my big new home up in the hills, <laughs> I couldn't help but to notice my buddy and yours, Brett the Hitman Hart, Tell everybody that if he did not win the World Wrestling Federation Championship at SummerSlam, he would never wrestle on U.S. soil once again. Now, 
I don't know about everybody else, but I have been waiting a long time to see Bret Hart's sorry ass get out of the United States of America. So having said that, I currently right now am not scheduled to be at SummerSlam. That's not my decision. That's someone else's around here. So, if I could appeal to you, boss man, if I get down on my knees in front of my hometown people and beg you to please allow me, the dirty, rotten employee that I am, please allow me to just be a part of SummerSlam. I'll set up the ring. I'll sell souvenirs at the souvenir stand. I will sell tickets at the front door. Ha! Then, man, I'll shine your shoes if you just please grant me one ticket to SummerSlam because it's my guess that The Undertaker is going to bury Bret the Hitman Hart and run him out of this country. Second up, show number two, we're in San Antonio. Midway through the show, out comes Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels is still theoretically injured, so he did work later in the show. Um, and, you know, he's jumping about and doing flips, and he's like, yeah, my knee's still really hurting. Yes, of course it is, Sean. Um, but Sean in his hometown, in front of Vincent Mann, uh, very much firmly back in the fold for now, and things can, things can change at any time. Um, and, Jeff, I think it's fair to say that Sean Michaels is enjoying himself right now. Maybe it's just leverage that he thinks he's got. Maybe he thinks he's untouchable. Not that he never didn't. Um, but when you can piss off people so many times and still be welcomed back with open arms, it's probably understandable. But Sean Michaels is enjoying himself right now, and it really shows in his promos. Yeah, I think the combination of you know refilled prescriptions and uh, the ability to say whatever the hell he wants, he's, he's you know... He's quite self-aggrandizing. Uh, again, you know, he Shawn Michaels as a heel, and I took this as a heel promo, or at least, you know, a tweener promo, because he's so cocky and he's so arrogant. I thought it was, I think he's, a, this is the this is the Shawn Michaels character I wish was world champion, because so much more personality comes across from it than him just being a good guy. And when he has this kind of veneer of, inauthenticity or, or just kind of phoniness where he's just doing the whole, my good friend Brett and all this, all this sarcasm. I, I thought it just, it landed perfectly and, and him defending, you know, I don't know if I'd want him being the guy to defend my country because he'd probably sleep in or miss the plane or something, but, uh, cause Shawn Michaels, nothing but a professional, you guys. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, I think Shawn's promo is good. I think Shawn's awesome in this role, even though I think, as a human being, he's probably, uh, you know, pretty low on my like list. I think in, in Britain we'd probably call him a bit of a dick, would be uh, probably how it translates this side of the pond. I mean, Ameri always... Americans don't even like him. Syracuse, last time I checked, wasn't in Canada. Oh, Madison Square Garden's not in Canada. Um, 
and the Americans generally like Sid, certainly come the end of it. Oh, yeah. Um, that's true. Yeah, there, there, is, there is that as well. Uh, but I, was, I, was more, I was more poking fun at the fact that Shawn Michaels got beat up by a, you know, a guy. I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that. There was, there was nowhere to take that statement, so I just thought I'd kind of move around it. Oh, I, yes. just, I, just, I just take any opportunity, Bob. Yeah, yes, I'm, we're, we're aware. Um, we're aware. Um, Roy, <laughs> Shawn Michaels in his hometown um, with Vince McMahon in the ring, um, just having a bit of fun, I suppose. Whatever, whatever the course or the source of that fun is, is not necessarily for, for for this kind of conversation. Um, but Shawn Michaels just just messing about a little bit, um, and Vince McMahon was enjoying himself too. Um, and you know, this is if sure, you know, it's on TV, so Vince can only do so much. Um, but if Sean can keep doing this shit and still be welcome back with open arms, he's going to keep doing that shit. So I guess at some point, this has just got to embrace it, right? Absolutely, this is it. I actually put this in the in the show notes that you everyone would have heard when HBK calls himself a dirty, rotten employee. And Vince laughs at it. Laughs a bit too hard, in my opinion, but there you go. This is Sean just, again, to use the UKism, just arsing about, because he can. He is untouchable. He's, he's unsackable. He's got four years left on his contract. Vince might as well just shut up shop right away if, if Sean ever makes his way you know, down the ramp at Atlanta. So Sean is Teflon. He can get away with this sort of stuff. And he is going to play it up to the max. He's going to mug to the camera and call Bret Hart my friend and yours. You know? He's going to call Vince boss man 20 times during an interview segment. He's really going to ramble about whatever he wants because he's Sean Michaels, damn it, and he does what he pleases because the boss lets him. The boss has to let him. Yeah, what choice does Vince have? You were, uh, yeah, better have Sean on inside of the tent pissing out than on the outside of the tent pissing in. I think is the is the way to explain all of that. But yeah, like you know, it's the, the, the part of the reason why you know the women love him so much. One is because of what he looks like, but also because they're probably the, the, the slightly less kind of tuned in. Like they just they're, they're judging Sean by what they see, not by the the context around it. Um, and he's just a really likable character. Like you know, like I know, also we're gonna get the pro in a bit where he's he, he's trying to play it off as a heel and this you know this run of rules. So they had one war in Canada, one war in America, one war in Canada, one war in America, which is good, and I don't think it's sustainable. Um, but Sean in this environment's really really good. Um, he looks like he's having fun, um, in part because he's just pushing the boundaries right in front of the boss because he knows he can get away with it. Um, but also yeah, like you know. Him, him just begging for his job, begging for his job back and begging for a spot at SummerSlam. I seem to recall that happening uh, at WrestleMania as well. There's a, you know, I'm sure Sean got paid the same amount. Um, but yeah, Sean's having a lot of fun. And what we're now going to do, other side of this TV report, let's listen to the next promo Sean comes. We're in Halifax, Nova Scotia on the 21st after a dramatic video package narrated by JR which all but suggests that USA and Canada are now at war. We start off in the ring with Vader against Shamrock. Once again, this is a stiff outing or nowhere near as good as their match in May. Ken gets thrown to the outside, then with the ref distracted, Bulldog gives him the running pass I'm on the ramp and Vader wins by countout. A brief vignette airs of a huge looking bloke from Germany by the name of Brackus. He threatens the Hart Foundation in his native tongue. Speaking to the Foundation, they're now in the ring. Brett points out the USA is shaped like a giant toilet bowl that is apparently because Americans are just plain full of crap. Brett Paul calls out the Undertaker right now. 
Bulldog gets the mic and challenges Shamrock for right now as well. Onan does the same for that stone cold slime Austin. If he wants, he can suck my toes. Austin then emerges and accepts the challenge for the six-man flag match later tonight. Brian Christopher defeats Brian Walsh with the Alabama Jam. For the first time in months, we hear from the commandment, the Truth Commissioner really coming next week. We then get Vince voicing the dude love story. This is just potted highlights from the recent Mankind interview with JR plus last ta- last week's tag title win. But at least gives McMahon the chance to not so subtly bury Cactus Jack. Austin then takes it, talks to us backstage. He doesn't know if dude is crazy or has a lot of guts, but he has what it takes to get it done. Stone Cold still doesn't need a tag team partner though. In a triple threat tag team match that was announced as having an hour long time limit, the goal wins defeat the new Blackjacks and the headbangers out of Phineas hits Wyndham with the slot bucket. They get the shot against Austin and Doom next week. JR introduces HBK, the crowd loathe him but plays up to the max. This includes putting the Canadian flag down his shorts. Sean is going to be in action in the flag match tonight and he will be the special guest referee for Brett vs Undertaker at SummerSlam because I only ever work the main event. If HBK doesn't call the match down in the middle then he won't be able to wrestle in the US again. Brett, buddy, pal of mine, if you can't trust Shawn Michaels, who can you trust? Hunter vs the Patriots seems like a strange match to put on here but it's just a backdrop for an irate Brett to complain to Vince about being swerved by the Michaels announcement. Brett knocks McMahon's headset off and the two start to brawl. Vince even pulls Brett's shirt over his head as if it were a hockey fight. The foundation then take their frustrations out on Patriot. We hurriedly cut to Bear in the back. He proves Kane is alive by showing us half of the statue which he and Undertaker used to own. We're not going to see Kane though because we don't want to see him. Farouk vs Goldust is next. Vince heads to the back and JR tells us because the hearts are seen coming out of Sean's dressing room and Sean might be injured. The match ends in a lane DQ after Karma interferes. Vince and officials are backstage with a limping and angry Sean. HBK asks how long is this going to go on? Our six man flag match arraign event arrives. After O Canada the foundation opponents turn out to be Austin, Dude Love and eventually Undertaker. Match gets some decent time as a fun watch. Undertaker is about to grab the US flag, but Pillman appears from under the ring to low blow him. Black then captures the Maple Leaf for the win, and the foundation celebrating the crowd. today we found out you're going to be here to make a blockbuster announcement. The stage is yours, and we're ready to hear it. Well, I got a lot of things on my mind, Dirk Brooks. First and foremost. I'd like to address how unappreciative the Canadians are to the U.S. people. Here you have, in the U.S., I'm sorry, the Canadian Daily News, that in the U.S. freed all your fairies. See, we're that kind of, we're that kind of country. We'll free your fairies, we'll free your heterosexuals, we'll free your transvestites, we're good with everything. <laughs> John Michael has done it no matter what country he's ever in. Even though I'm not getting my appreciation from this crowd, I have some deep memories of Canada. I can remember sitting home Christmas morning, my parents giving me some little Canadian army men. And 
And they all came out like this. <laughs> and of course, I can't pass this one up. Everybody knows why the U.S. keeps from falling into the ocean because Canada sucks. Every now and then, the John could go just a little too far. But now that I've had my fun, I have to come out here and let every one of you know that the heartbreak kid. If I didn't know better, I'd say you were talking to me, but you can't be. I know you're not talking to me. Oh, where was I? Oh, yeah. This flag match. The Hart Foundation won three ready and able Americans. Stone Cold is one. And I'll give you one guess. Who's gonna be number two? Can it be? That's right. HBK himself, the Hunt Rick Kid. Whoa! John Michaels in action tonight. Whoa. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. The... Oh, whoa. Whoa. whoa! Did you think that was it? <laughs> You've got to know me better than that. Now everybody knows. Last week, I got on my hands and knees and pleaded to the World Wrestling Federation officials that I wanted to be a part of SummerSlam. Yes. 
professional referee. Wait just a second. You're going to referee a match involving Bret Hart and The Undertaker for the WWF title. Don't you think that Bret Hart may feel that that's a little bit prejudicial? What Bret Hart feels is not my concern. You want to feel something, Bret, feel this. But the WWF officials have made it clear to me that if I do not call the match down the middle, if I lean towards the Undertaker's side, I also will not be able to wrestle in the United States. So, if I don't call the match down the middle, I'm going to have to move up here with the rest of you and wrestle in front of you every day of my life. So Rory, we come to back to Canada. Sean comes. Uh, Sean comes back out to a massive heel reaction. This this kind of black and white juxtaposition week to week is great to watch. Jim Ross in the ring this time, um, and they've got a bit necessarily have the direction of Sean the previous week, but they were at least willing to reveal a bit more the the, the direction of SummerSlam, and also it was only thirteen days away at that point. Um, and so Sean comes out, he starts ripping on Canada, and he's like, you know. When I uh, when I was young, I got a, a a bag full of toy Canadian shoulder soldiers, and they all came out of the bag. And they all had their arms up in the air, which was just brilliant. That's such a good line. And he's taking shots left, right, and centre. And it's short with his attitude. It's you know, it's it's very very different. But Rory, we we talk about you know, for all Sean's faults, we talk about two very different promos in very different settings. But he read both of them very very well, and arguably both of them were as good. I agree, Bob, but this is only working on the proviso that I was able to hear what HBK was saying because the heat was unreal. He was getting boos far exceeded, say, for example, Steve Austin's at this particular edition of Raw. You literally could not hear him through so much dispromo. The hate was so vociferous. It was absolutely incredible. He just hammed it up to the maximum like... Uh, like the showman that he is, and just sticking a Canadian flag down his shorts, for goodness sake. Mostly we didn't actually see him do that, but he's going to wind these people up because he absolutely loves this. I think he really quite embraces the fact that he's become a bit of a, a bit of an enemy of the, of, of, of the good Canadian people. And again, it's, even though this is a very different promo, this was heel HBK a week after Lovable, lovable goof off, does what he wants, face HBK. And, but he's still HBK. He's still putting his face right up to the camera saying, I'm going to be the ref of Brett for the Undertaker at SummerSlam because I only ever work the main event. I mean, you, mate, you've got some bloody nerve saying that stuff on camera, haven't you? He'll all know he'll in this particular week. Again, it was fantastic. It was real, just eight, a baby face, remember, still very much a baby face in WWF canon, but just getting, legitimate hatred from people who have paid money to come to a show. Again, it was uh, it was fantastic and he just loves it, the big uh, the big ham. Jeff? Yeah, Sean, I mean, I'll, I'll never take away from his ability to be an A-plus showman. Uh, you know, he, he was an awesome heel. Again, this is this is the type of heat you very rarely see in WWF. Um, Again, I've always said or I've always felt that that Shawn Michaels title run in 96 last year uh, 
was kind of undercut by the amount of baby facing he was doing. And, and I, you know, the stuff we saw with Mankind where he showed a bit more aggression was the stuff I liked. So I really liked seeing the direction that Michaels is taking when he does this type of stuff because I feel like Shawn Michaels as a prick character is a little more closer to the bone than say, you know, the guy who's kissing babies and shaking hands and signing autographs and being a nice guy. So when I see this, it just, it just rings true to his wheelhouse. And I think it adds so much intrigue because the Brett animosity exudes reality. So everything combined, you know, it's not like Sean's working, but he's, you know, working the main event, but He's there. He adds this element of of drama and reality. I just a plus promo as a Canadian. I mean, the stuff he said was was good heat saying, and uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, um, Sean's just a lot of fun sometimes, for for, for good or for bad, like for, for for whatever you know. There's the you know Vince McMahon in part tolerates it because he has to. Um, because Sean going to WCW, I think, Roy, as you said, is would probably be it. Um, it certainly would have been last year. They're a slightly better position now. Um, but he's also just really fucking good. Like, the, the, the guy is the, the best all-rounder in wrestling. You know, you're looking at, if you're looking at charisma to a point drawing power to a point, um, and re- in ring ability, nobody really comes close. Um, Scott Hall probably could if he was presented correctly, but he's not going to be. Um, and, and I don't think Scott Hall's even at that level, or he could be. Um, and yeah, like it's, it's just, it's just great fun watching Sean. Like, you know, I imagine Sean had like 10 times as much fun healing up in Canada as he did in San Antonio. Um, bouncing off of Jim Ross and doing all of his anti-Canada stuff. And, you know, it's, Sean could probably cut any kind of promo, but again, it kind of, kind of comes back to the Brett thing. You get the feeling he believes it to one point or another and he's just hamming it up. Um, and yeah, I don't know when they're going to get to this Sean and Brett match. Um, I suspect to a point that's fair enough, given that they can't really plan around Sean more than two or three weeks in advance, as we saw a few months ago. Um, but at some point they're going to have to, and at some point it's going to be really, really good. Um, and the fact that almost the fact they didn't do a second match is actually probably going to help there a little bit. Brett himself can tell you where we are for the SummerSlam Go Home show on the 28th. If you're going to give the United States an enema, you'd stick the hose right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. JR informs us that despite Hitman's actions last week, he will not be suspended or fired. However, a new commissioner will be appointed in seven days' time. Brett says that he never literally meant he wouldn't wrestle in the US again. It was just a figure of speech. At SummerSlam, he will be a fifth-time WWF champion. After touching all the usual bases, Brett challenges Patriot for a match later tonight. The LOD face off against Savio Vega and Miguel. We're about to see a doomsday device, but the remaining Bariquas attack for the DQ. Godwins then show up, Port gets a slot drop on the outside, and then covered in slot for good measure. Helmsley is now scheduled to take on Vader. China stops the Mastodon coming to the ring, but as this happens, Helmsley gets jumped from behind by a cameraman. Well, it's not, it's actually mankind. Mask is a bit of a giveaway. After a crotch in China on the top rope, he and Hunter fight through the crowd, with Foley getting the better of the exchanges. Another Bracus clip airs, and this time he threatens the nation. 
Joel was extraordinaire, Bob Holly, Jesse James and Flash Funk are the first opponents for Recon, Sniper and the Interrogator. The Truth Commission Interrogator gets the win with a slide slam on Bob. A planned video package on the Patriot states he's an international superstar who has fought all over the world. Or in non-WWF speak, formerly of WCW. He accepts Brett's challenge. Crush vs Farouk is next. Ahmed is back with the NOD. After Crush misses a big boot by an absolute mile, everyone runs in for the no contest. The Barikas are here and they give Crush a four-man powerbomb on the ramp. Austin and Doe defend the tag titles against the Godwinds. Henry dumps Austin to the outside and Owen, on guest commentary, whacks Stone Cold in the head with his slammy as the Godwinds win by countout. The LOD emerge and the heels scarper to the back. Devon Storm beats Ace Darling in less than a minute with a Rana reversal. An arm wrestling match between Bulldog and Shamrock is up. As with all worked arm wrestling matches, the face is about to win before the heel slugs him. A headbutt and chair shots put Ken down and Davey covers Shamrock in what else but dog food. Goldust and Marlena bring a mannequin to ringside. Somebody's been watching the competition. It's clad in the dress that Pill will be wearing if Goldust wins at SummerSlam. Goldust clotheslines his opponent Rockabilly to the outside and Billy tries his luck with the IBF heavyweight champion Michael Mora at ringside. And guess how that goes. Pillman then staggers down to attack Goldust but Marlena jumps on his back to break it up. A video package airs which various superstars put over The Undertaker is next. Brett says he isn't like Sid or Diesel, big giants who lack mobility. This well-done segment gives the forthcoming title match at SummerSlam a much-needed boost. Sean joins us on commentary for Brett versus The Patriot. Hitman demands, are we here, oh Canada? He gets his wish and it's uninterrupted this time. Brett attacks though with The Patriot during the Star Spangled Banner and it's still playing as the match begins. After a ref bump, Brett goes for a cover but Sean drags him off. The Patriot then catches Hart with a roll up and gets the three count. HBK talks the hitman from the outs table as the gong hits and the show ends. Fear and hope are the same underneath. And I know everyone thinks that I got everything to be afraid of, but I haven't lost hope. And next week in the SummerSlam. going to say next week in the SummerSlam, despite the fact that you got, let me ask you, Shawn Michaels. Oh, I think you're happy about that. It's all fixed up nice for everybody. Shawn Michaels, and just supposing that Shawn Michaels doesn't call this one fair. What happens then? I still get screwed, and he gets home for another 10 years looking for his smile. I'm just going to say this. Next week in the SummerSlam, whether you Americans like it or not, I will be a fifth-time World Wrestling Federation champion. I'm going to address something else. Shawn Michaels. After all the crap he said about Canadians last week, you know, it's bad enough what he says about me. And it's bad enough what he says about my family and the Hart Foundation. 
but you better apologize to the Canadian fans for the trash that came out of your mouth. And you better do it for your own health and welfare. Last week, I said the United States of America was one big, giant toilet bowl. If you were going to give the United States of America an enema, you'd stick the holes right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Because you're the piss. I'm going to say one last thing. Last week, the Patriot decided to stick his nose in my business. Now, here's this guy walks into the World Wrestling Federation, the new kid on the block. It starts preaching to me about American values. Patriot, you align yourself with the wrong people. Here you are, you come out on stage in San Antonio, Texas. You've got Shawn Michaels on one hand. You've got Stone Cold Steve Austin on the other. To me, you're setting the wrong example. Bill Clinton walking out with the, the Unabomber and Richard Simmons. It just doesn't, doesn't ring right to me. So tonight, in front of all you American fans, I'm going to set one more example. And the, and the Patriot, you're going to just be one more name that I'm going to add on to a list of Americans that I'm going to flush down the toilet. You're making a challenge to the Patriot? I'm making a challenge to the Patriot. I'm going to flush him down the toilet right here tonight on Raw. And Undertaker, you're the next one on my list. And by hook or by crook, I will be fifth-time World Wrestling Federation champion. And I promise to bring the championship belt back to Canada where it belongs. And then to finish the, 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 the quartet of promos, you know, we had the, the, the Brett home promo, the Sean home promo. We then got Sean away from home, and now Brett away from home. Um, and Jeff, I think this is where this fell down a little bit. Um, you know, they they have made the mistake a lot in the last few months of, of sending Brett Hart out in front of a crowd without much to say uh, for quite long stretches of time. But generally, they've just about got away with it. Um, but at the end of the month, Brett Hart cut a incredibly listless promo with one very good line, you know, the line about the, the lobotomy of America, you'd stick the, the, the tube in Philadelphia. Enema. Um, enema, that's right. Slight difference. Um, yes. Um, yeah, fair point. Um, was was very good. Um, but Jeff, otherwise we just saw Brett out there for about, God, it felt like 20 minutes. It wasn't, but it, it felt like it just kind of drowning. Um, and start on what your thoughts of the promo were, and I'll kind of, I'll, I'll leave the discussion as and when I, 
I want to. Well, I, th- I think the character itself has to have a purpose, and some of this stuff, especially this promo, was a bit meandering. I think the high spots for a Brett, you know, 97 heel promo as opposed to, like, a 94 babyface promo is that Brett, Brett always comes across as self-righteous, but that can come across as sanctimonious, and he, if he plays the sanctimony up and says all of these things that he feels are, are truths, they can really hit home. But if he doesn't have a direction and a purpose, like for me, the, the issue is who's he feuding with here? Is he feuding with The Undertaker? Is he feuding with Sean? Is he feuding with Austin? Is he feuding with Vince? Is it just America? It didn't really feel like this was something to sell SummerSlam. And as a result, he just kept trying to, you know, go around the block again and again and again without hitting home, you know, specific talking points. And actually, and this isn't a knock, I love this Brett run. I think it's incredible. I think he's the best promo he's ever been. It felt a little like some of those Piper WCW ones where you don't know where he's going, and I'm not sure he does either. Um, But, again, I I think the character is just such a home run right now that uh, it's hard for me to complain. I'm super biased. He's my favorite wrestler of all time. Um, and I'm impressed by how he's been able to carry this heel one week, baby the next um, character. But yeah, it just it meandered as much as I am right now. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, Rory, he he really lost his well, if he had a trail to lose. Um, and yeah, like the crowd got pretty bored quite quickly as Brett just didn't go anywhere. And the the, the point I was going to kind of lead us towards was you're six days out from a, a world title match and you barely mentioned your opponent but what do you think of it more generally yeah he, he, he completely lost it here didn't he when the crowd went silent for the last two minutes I thought oh, oh this ain't good but it was just all over the shop as we say this side of the water in that, that animal line yes that was a good one and what was it US is like something like a like putting was it putting Bill Clinton next to the Una Bomber and Richard Simmons? I thought, what? I, well, I, no, I, that, that was the bit with wasn't that the bit the previous week with Austin coming out on the stage and then being flanked by Patriot and Ken Sharon? Oh was yes, that okay, that, 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 that's right. Yeah, but again, he did, well, the fact he didn't really get that point over when the, it's, it's confused even me. My, what well, pop culture well, reference well, dropping? Way to get over Ken Shamrock as well. Unless he, was, <laughs> unless he was all about Sid and Patriot, but I don't think he was. I think so. Sid's persona on Grata now, sadly. Yeah, it, it, this, this was really, really poor from Brett, and I think deep down he would tell you afterwards that he knew it. It was almost, it, it's almost felt, it felt like it was the first big heel promo he'd ever cut, and it isn't. It's about something like the, the 12th or 13th major 10 minute one he's done on Raw since he turned at the end of March. This was really, really weak stuff. He just touched all the usual bases in such a listless, sloppy fashion, and it gave the impression, almost out of nowhere and suddenly, that his heart somehow wasn't in this particular angle, which I, I don't believe that's true. I believe he's, he is giving it his all every time, but this was really, really poor stuff, and it did nothing to sell the SummerSlam in six days' time. No, as he tries to become, you know, the fifth-time WWF champion, as he kept saying as well. I love it. His his turn of phrase is bloody gold, isn't it? I love it. Yeah, it's a little bit. Um, Yeah, I, you know, I made the comparison, it might have been last month, it might have been a couple of months ago, um, between this storyline and the NWO storyline. I don't necessarily know that 
this isn't a far better storyline in terms of it's you know it's got a, a a natural good guy a natural bad guy okay that changes depending on the location but that's part of why it works so well and yet the the reason the NWO is you know drawing money hand over fist um, in part because it's been going six months not so this can't um, and this isn't quite hitting those heights is that if you compare the promo ability of Hulk Hogan, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash to Bret Hart, Owen Hart and the British Bulldog, it's, it, it's, it, it doesn't really bear comparison. Like, it's pretty ugly. Um, Bret is not a great promo. I've had multiple people say to me this month, well, it's the best work of his career. Well, yes, but that's, that's a pretty low bar. Um, Owen's not a good promo. Owen's not natural on the mic either. And Bulldog's sure as shit ain't. Um, I think that's the problem. Is, you know, it's... Part of the reason... We go back to what happened with Austin and Brett on that split screen in... October last year or November, one of the two. And they had Austin and Brett with a live mic, admittedly from two different locations. In the space of about three minutes, Austin ripped him apart. Um, and... Michaels has has come out at times and kind of sank Brett a little bit too. Not in the last couple of months, but go back certainly before WrestleMania. And I don't think it, you know, it's quite telling that they're not putting Brett in the ring with a mic opposite Steve Austin. I think that's quite telling. I think this is where this storyline is struggling a little. And not to say it's not a really good storyline, but the thing restricting it is that Unless Brett's got some really obvious stuff to hit, and it doesn't help, they just keep sending him out there because they don't have a lot else. It's just Brett, who's not the most confident promo, without anywhere to go, and, you know, whoever kind of laid out the promo really needs to be shot. I don't know why that promo wasn't focused all on Undertaker. Um, but, Rory, I think that's the... If, if there's an issue with this storyline as we kind of move into a more general discussion about it it's as well as it's structured and it's structured significantly better than the nwo is and that there's a you know that the, there's guys clearly getting over as a result so i feel like they're building to big matches that people really want to see um although they are to a point with hogan's thing it's that brett owen and bulldog can't talk what is it, <laughs> no no they 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 really can't which is why they resort to such obvious tropes, especially in the case of Owen and Bulldog, which we're basically not far more advanced than Canada rocks, US sucks. And you, know, you can hear that out in, out in the lobbies for events between the fans every single week. You probably have for decades. You can't continue to build a feud around, around that. And their lack of promo ability is helping to keep unsheathed the fact that this whole particular angle is running out of legs at a time when it really should be making strides. And Brett now has a clean loss to, well, not a clean loss, but a roll-up pinfall loss to the Patriot, for crying out loud. I would indicate that Brett's probably going to be feuding with him at some point, if, if, he, if he wins the title, maybe even on some point on Raw next month, maybe. And do we really want to have such a base level, USA versus Canada, feud 
with oh I'm going to jump you during your national anthem da di da I was hoping and I know this is the WWF you should never get your hopes up but when this whole thing started it was going to be a little more sophisticated than this Yabu stuff that uh, I fear that's where it's going and the main protagonists don't have the skills on the microphone to take it elsewhere it's a major concern Jeff well I I think Brett's been doing excellent on the promos personally I just as somebody who never liked the way he was treated in 96. Um, I felt like a lot of the things that he said were justified. And again, I'm a huge fan of his. I totally believe everything he says because he believes it. And I just, this year, I, I think he's done an excellent job of being a, a very convicted character. And, you know, admittedly, he's had Steve Austin to work off of, which is excellent. Um, the other two, yeah, Owen is whiny and, and Davey's not a very present promo. But the thing that, the Hart Foundation really is is leaving on the table here. Is they have Brian Pillman in their stable, really just treading water in a you know opening mid card feud with Goldust, and he can say you know just anything and it'll get heat. And he's so creative and he's so you know maniacal and manic and and if you put him in there with Brett and Owen and Davey and let him maybe get some of the heat. As the manager of the Hart Foundation, he doesn't have to take the bumps, and now you've got a guy who can out-promo almost anybody in pro wrestling, and you've fixed your problems. Uh, you fixed it, but you've got a long way to solve it, certainly. Um, but yeah, that's Com- compared, to, compared to putting Davey and, and Nightheart in a promo. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Nightheart doesn't talk. I mean, that says a lot. Um, but yeah, no, Pil- Pillman is... By distance, their best talker, but they're kind of kind of pigeonholed them in the in this kind of wacky, goofy character role, which kind of doesn't lend itself to, to long form promos. Um, which is kind of fair enough. You're playing the pill and strength with nothing else. But yeah, that's the that's kind of the point. It just you know, like I, I, I'm waiting. You know, I, I'm just wondering where where the big sell for this is going to come. You know, in terms of the quality, of the show's not very good, but in terms of ratings and in ter- you know. We saw, you know, Arna Poe's Monday show didn't really do a lot rating-wise. Um, pay-per-views are doing, you know, the Stampede did a better buy it than they were hoping for, but not great numbers. And we can talk what we want about show quality, but if people don't buy the shows, then it's it, it kind of defeats the point. And you've got, you know, and some of this is Brett's fault. You know, the fact that he's he's not being given instruction to talk about the Undertaker few more, or the fact they're not having him interact with Undertaker isn't particularly productive. So so close in. Um, but it, you know, it really would send it over the edge if they could send Brett and Sean out there in the same ring at the same time. Now, admittedly, that's the only. You know, it's not just the fact that they're worried that Sean could kill Brett on the mic. It's also the kind of worry what they both might say if you give them a, a live mic in the same setting. We've seen that go wrong before. Um, yeah, that's just that's the sticking point right now. You know, Brett's strength is not in ten-minute monologue promos certainly when he's got nothing to say and certainly in front of a crowd that he can't feed off of. The promo in Canada worked because he, you know, he could hit bullet points, he could say things and get cheap pops and kind of work with the crowd. Um, this one, not quite so much. Um, Jeff, a more general dis- discussion about the, the US-Canada side of things. Um, you know, it's it's a bit obvious, as I kind of said a few months ago, it's a bit crowbarred in, um, but it's working extremely well. 
Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's really hard for me because I've been to so many WWF cards in Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> we, we always cheer the heels. It's just kind of a thing we do. Um, and it was something that even as a kid, you know, you would go and watch Piper Flair and you'd want to cheer. Actually, I, I cheered Piper, but if you had like Rick Rude versus, uh, Ultimate Warrior, Rude would get some cheers, and it's part of kind of the fandom there. And when you have now Canadian heels, that's just that's just you know double your pleasure. Uh, it's cheap heat. Uh, it's it's not anything they haven't done in pro wrestling a million times before. Uh, I think the thing to hang the ratings and the pay per view buys on Brett. I always go back to that Jim Cornette quote where he says, you know. I can't draw you money this month with what we're booking tonight, but what we book tonight can draw money six to eight months from now. And I think when you have elevated match quality and you have these characters that are really drawing heat, it's going to help in the long term because you're building up good nature, good good credit with your fan base. Whereas if you watch a WCW pay-per-view, you're leaving a pretty rotten taste in the fans' mouths a lot of the times. And it's not great for return business. And I think this Brett character, this Austin character, this feud will help down the line because it's it's reestablishing a fan base that, if you look at 96, was kind of being run off by some, some really lame main event type angles. Roy? I'm still not sure what the ultimate denouement for this whole storyline is going to be. I want to say that it's going to be Brett v. Sean for the final time at WrestleMania 14, which might somehow end with Brett turning full face again. But somehow I just can't see that happening. D- didn't this whole storyline end at Canadian Stampede anyway? Because Team Canada won, didn't well, they? won and the Hart family celebrated at the end. It's they, they, They've jumped ahead to Chapter 8 without having given us Chapters 3, 4, 5, 6 and 7. But the, the promos that we've got on Raw throughout this month indicate that this particular USAB Canada thing is only just getting started. But I can't see how where it's really going to end. It's not going to end if Brett wins the WWF title in six days' time against, uh, against The Undertaker. It's not going to end there. Whether Undertaker carries on feuding with him or not, I don't know. But it's almost as if now, when they thought about giving Brett this particular character back in, back in March... That they had the, they had the beginning, they knew the end they wanted, but they had no idea what the end itself was actually going to be, or how to get there. And as good as a lot of people's individual individual performances have been, I'm concerned that as we move out of SummerSlam, which is traditionally quite a, a dead period anyway, things are going to get a lot more modelled when they should be getting very very clear. Yeah. Um... You know, I think they've done really, really well with with what they've set up so far. Uh, the end game's not clear, but that's fine. That's that's good. And the end game, the end game might not be the match between Sean and Brett. It might, might sorry, it might not be the end of the match between Sean and Brett. It might be the start. Like they might have won it if they can get them both in the same ring at the same time and and be on the same page. Um, that might be the big the big challenge there. Um, but yeah, they've they've got something very good going on here. Um, at a time where I think they're still trying to shuffle a lot of things about everywhere else and, and, and get things you get the right kind of puzzle pieces in places. Like, you know, everyone seems to be everyone seems to have to be in a team of four right now, which is a bit weird. 
Um, but that's kind of where they're going at the moment. Um, and yeah, like it's it's their it's their best storyline. It's probably better than anything else they could be doing right now. In that it feels like they've got multiple matches that people want to see. That's kind of been my my mo the last couple of months. Put on matches that people want to watch. Um, and I feel like they've got some here. You know, they've got Bretton Austin again. Um, you know, I still go back to what I said a few months ago. I don't think it helped them they did Bret Austin 3 so soon um, after number 2. But, like, Bret Austin is clearly a match people still want to see. Bret and Michaels will be a license to print money if they weren't so worried about it all falling apart and Michaels buggering off and, you know, finishing that kind of thing. Um and there's other guys that, that are or can be involved and can be elevated. I still think there's a great match program to have between Brett and Ken Shamrock, if they can line that up correctly, if they can present Shamrock correctly. Um, and there's other things as well. Like they've, got a, they've got a really good thing going right now. It doesn't help the fact they've got two hours of TV to fill a week, so they've got to send these guys out, often with nothing to say. Um it doesn't help the fact that Undertaker doesn't really fit in particularly well with this storyline, even though he is the champion. Undertaker doesn't fit well with any ring storyline right now. They've got to keep putting him in matches. Um, you know, I'm I'm fairly convinced that uh, that Brett's going to win at the weekend. One um, well, because of the, the, the stipulation. I mean, there's, there's enough stipulations going on where they may have come up with some kind of convoluted finish, but it would make sense. Um, and then, yeah, you know, like, they've, they've got something really good going right now. And whether it's obvious, whether it's it's playing off your audience being quite, dare I say it, simple, the whole US Canada thing isn't the most nuanced storyline any, any entertainment program's ever going to present you with. Um, they've got something good going. And and they've, they're presenting it well. By and large, it's fine. And they've got matches people want to see. I think that's important. Um, to backpedal a couple of weeks, to, to something that I, I didn't want to interrupt our kind of Brett Sean flow across the uh, across the, the quartet. Um, doesn't include Sean a little bit. Um, is Steve Austin attempting to find a tag team partner to defend his tag titles with um, against Owen and Davey? Um, and Rory, I asked a couple of months ago about, or maybe it was last month, about whether the the mankind pull back the curtain videos were an admission that that hasn't worked. Am I getting warmer now on the Mankind thing may not have worked given that he turned up as a 1986 Austin Powers impersonator um, and with this wacky old music? I think so, but um, the Mankind sit-down interviews gave us some context for it. If he had just turned up on July the 14th dressed in tie-dye and a very ill-fitting bandana and sunglasses, which he clearly can't balance on his uh, his right ear, because he hasn't got one, then, uh, then I think we would have been able to ask a fair few questions. But uh, the appearance of Dude Love, I feel like we already know everything about Dude Love, who he is, what his uh, what his motivations are. I think that says a lot of how one-dimensional he is. Well, yeah, I don't have a problem with that, because they're Mick Foley's, and that's why I love those interviews so much. The Goldust ones were just obvious, for the sake of saying, oh, this, this bloke, he dresses in gold, uh, looks like a, an Oscar statue. Uh, he's really just Dustin Runnels, yeah, just playing a character and having fun. The Mankind sit-down interviews were getting Mick Foley's own feelings over through the through the prism of the Mankind character. Now, there were so many places you could go, and they chosen to go with Dude Love. And he played that character amazingly. It's, it's, like, it's like 
and you, you you wouldn't know that this is a very British British reference, but you wouldn't know that Norman Stanley Fletcher and Arkwright were played by the same person. This was Mick Foley from Mankind on the, on the same show. He's there rocking backwards and forwards in a, in, a, in a dimly lit boiler room, and then thirty minutes later, here he is jucking and jiving down to, down to ringside, waving at Steve Austin. Uh, I thought it was I thought it was brilliant, just brilliant. I, I loved it. Jeff, did you get the Norman Stanley Fletcher Arkwright reference to the Zach Jesus Zach Christ? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well done, Rory. We'll, uh, we'll we'll leave that one in the ether, I think. Uh, Jeff, uh, other than that, what are your, your thoughts on, on Dude Love and all things Mankind and Mick Foley? Well, I think it's time for an education lesson for you two. Uh, there was a character, uh, character babyface named the Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant. Uh, oh, gosh, yeah. That's basically what Dude Love is. Uh, it's, it's a retread of something that probably would have worked in the territories as a, as a mid-level baby face. And it's been, you know, manicured as probably Mick Foley's, you know, childhood, you know, interpretation of those characters he read about in the Bill Matt, Bill Hepter magazines. Uh, it, it, to me, doesn't land. It seems hokey and goofy. And if that's what they want to go for, that's what they want to go for. I, I thought I was particularly telling, when Vince was doing the voiceovers and saying that Cactus Jack had uh, something like a modicum of success in, you know, Japan or in the violent matches or whatever it was. And I I just think, like, they still haven't delivered the, like, I I think Cactus Jack is one of the best characters of the last decade. When you have that guy right there ready that, you know, they're not using – then there's mankind, and I have this goofy gimmick that's, like I said, it's it's the boogie woogie man. It's it's a very limited shelf life gimmick, and you're putting it in there with your top babyface Steve Austin. I don't like that. I think that uh, devalues your presentation of Austin by putting him in there with a goof. And and quite honestly, why should Austin be friends with this guy who's kind of making a mockery of everything when Austin's just this vindictive, you know, sadist? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't like it. Yeah, Austin rips mankind, but he doesn't rip dude love. Like, which which one's the easier target? Um, but yeah, it's it it, it just to to me the, the the mankind character. I don't want to call it a failure. I was in the feud of the year last year, but to me the you know I, I, Mick Foley's one of the best acts they've got. He he is on that level with Undertaker with with Brett with Sean and with Austin. He's in that group. And yet the the Mankind character, as hard as they tried at times, did not make that jump. You know, um, and I would argue that it only ever got close to making that jump because of Mick Foley, not because of Mankind. Um, and, you know, it's like, not every idea is a good one. And I don't know that, you know, it might, it might make people like Mick Foley more if he's dude love because it, it's a, you know but this is mid-card comedy and you know you sure you can present him again as Mankind in the future you could even bring back Cactus Jack if you wanted to I'd be stunned if Vince did um, you know you can't say he had a modicum success of Cactus Jack oh let's bring him back because nothing else works but I think once you say this guy's mid-card comedy, it's then very difficult to get him back up again. Um, and that'll be my main observation. I thought it was quite well presented. Um, Austin's Austin's facial expressions, as always, are completely on point when uh, when he when he saw him come out. 
Um, and I suspect he's more memorable than Mankind is in this role. But if, you know, if I was WWF and I'm looking for acts that I can use in and around the main event scene, Mick Foley would be the guy I would use. I probably wouldn't use him as Mankind. I sure shit wouldn't use him as Dude Love. And Jeff, I think you'd probably touch on the biggest point of all. Dude Love's not necessarily the worst thing, but it's like I don't know that putting him alongside Austin's all that useful either. Um, I'm sure Mick Foley's probably good enough to, to attempt to pull it off, but that's a hell of an unnecessary risk, would be my argument. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll fill in the gaps here. During a match between the Patriot and Hunter Hearst Helmsley in Halifax, Nova Scotia, yeah, yeah, <laughs> subtle, uh, Brett is uh, extremely vexed at the fact that Sean is going to be the special guest referee at SummerSlam, and he comes down to a cost Vince McMahon at ringside, using the word swerved on more than one occasion. Um, it looks like he's calmed down. He knocks Vince's headset off, and then Vince gets into Brett with it a little bit, as they say even pulling his shirt over his head in the old uh, hockey fight fashion. And JR is doing his best. JR's, stop it, damn it, on the, uh, on the mic next to it. Um, this was certainly different. <laughs> very, very different. I like the fact they... I don't know how, how quickly they came up with it. They at least gave themselves a bit of an out as to why nothing happened to Brett, saying, oh, people want to see him face The Undertaker so he won't be suspended. Uh, a reason is better than no reason, I guess. But uh, I really enjoyed it. I certainly wasn't expecting it. Um, I wonder if we think now that Vince is going to be playing any more physical roles in WWF programming. This is the first time, another history lesson, Vince, well, okay, Brett shoved Vince down when he gave us the old frustrated isn't the goddamn word for it promo back in March. But otherwise, Vince was hit by a, an Eric Roddy Piper chair and, on Superstars in 1991. And I think that's about it up until this point. I wonder if it's somewhere where they, uh, where they might go. But yes, it was uh, fascinating stuff and the crowd loved it as well, as they would. Yes, thank you, Rory, for reminding me not to jump ahead in my, uh, in my show notes. Uh, probably, probably the most important part of the month, but there we are. Uh, Jeff, your, your thoughts on the Brett-Vince interaction for show number three? Um, I thought it was cool. I think it makes Brett come across as edgy and off the cuff. Uh, I hated the hockey pull-apart in only because... Uh, in the hockey fight, Austin, Austin, Vince pulled up his uh, Brett's shirt over his head, and that's kind of like what the guy who's winning the fight would do in a hockey fight. And to see Brett jersey just kind of to a by a non wrestler, it kind of ticked me off. Uh, again, I'm I'm a I'm a diehard Brett fan. It's hard for me to maintain neutrality here. Um, you know, Vince has previously played uh, you know a, a heel 
type promoter in Memphis working Lawler with the USWA. So it's it's not too far of a stretch to see him wanting to be part of the action. You saw that with him and Michaels the week earlier where Sean was asking him, boss man, you know, I need I need a job, I, I'll take tickets, yada, yada. Um, but, yeah, I, I, the only thing I didn't like was that Brett had his shirt pull up over him because it just, I don't know, if I ever see a hockey fight and that happens, that guy usually is the loser, and I don't want my guy to be the loser. Yeah, that, that, that perhaps slightly overly picky NHL point aside. Uh, yes, um, you know, that was that was a little bit of note. But, yeah, very interesting to see this kind of, you know, Vince isn't the guy that hits back. Uh, not that he hit back, but he generally doesn't push back either. And this was Brett going over the top and Vince not really backing down. Um, that's interesting. If Vince gets dragged into this, there's another... A puzzle piece, albeit an inactive one. Um, I thought it was very well presented. The follow-up wasn't ideal, but you say, Rory, but, you know, the angle was good, but the, there was nowhere really to go in terms of, you know, the only logical thing to do would be to suspend Brett, and that, that doesn't make any sense from a booking standpoint. Um, just a very, very well presented angle. Very, very well shot. I, you know, it didn't look like a hokey wrestling angle. It got close, but it didn't. Um, and that's probably the most important thing, is that it's uh, it's another layer to this story, is that what if, you know, now I'm thinking, where does Vince McMahon fit, into, fit in amongst all of this? Where does, you know, Vince is, you know, joking around with Shawn Michaels, and the next week, you know, he's, he's going at Brett. And now they're talking about adding in a commissioner, um, you know. And, uh, Jeff, Jack Tony's Canadian, correct? Um, yes, him and his brother Frank ran the Toronto office for decades. I, I don't know that we need to see a a, a Vince-Jack Tunney power struggle, <laughs> but if, if Vince is going to side with Sean, and then Jack Tunney's going to be the Canadian straight-down-the-line commissioner but just leans in Brett's favour enough, that could be quite interesting. That could be, you know, I don't know whether they're clever enough to tell that story, but that could be quite interesting. I, um, I, I really don't think Jack Tunney's that good enough of a promo or a character or anything uh, to include on your weekly television show in 1997, or even yeah. 1977 for that matter. That, that, that is very, very true, but it's an, it's an interesting, there's ways around that if you need it. Um, you know, Nick Bockwinkle didn't appear on WCW television and he was still being referenced as their commissioner about eight months later. Um, so, you know, there are ways and means around this. But that's an interesting little point. I thought interesting, very, you know, the kind of angle that I imagine if they'd have presented it two years ago would look significantly different. If there was an angle that called for a rest or a main event and they put their hands on, on Vince, you know, in a more significant and not snappy way, say, as what Brett did in March, I don't know that it would look like this. I think this is an interesting kind of development point, nothing else. Anyway, thanks very much, Rory, for, for, for saying my shit there on that one. Now if we can open up the floor, um, anything from the news, anything from TVs that you'd like to discuss, mention, bring up? Uh, how about uh, no more dear old Sid? What do we think? Yeah, um, you know, it, it, it seems like there's something you know, physically awry with him. Uh, we don't quite know what. You know, talk about nerve damage, and you know, he, had a, he was involved in quite a serious car crash last month. Um, you know, him having an anxiety attack one way or another, although 
uh, quite why he thought, oh, I know, I'll just go back to my hotel room, didn't seem like the best idea. Um, but yeah, um, I hope he's okay, I suppose is point number one. Um, or I hope he can recover, because it sounds like he's lost a lot of muscle mass in the last couple of months. Although, as they were joking about backstage, perhaps they should get him on the uh, the Ahmed Johnson diet, whatever that is. The, uh, oh, I'm out injured for six weeks with a fuck knee. Oh, I'm now a lot more muscular than I was when I left. That's a little bit interesting. Um, but yeah, Sid's, uh, Sid's an interesting character, you know. Um, but... He's probably burnt one too many bridges. I don't know that WCW would take him back, given all the stuff that's gone on. Admittedly, Vader's not there anymore, and Anderson's not wrestling anymore. Um, but I don't... God knows how Sid would fit into an NWO-type storyline. Um, although, then again, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have backed Sid last year to fit into the Shawn Michaels storyline so well, and that was one of the big surprises of the year, so who knows? Um, but yeah, all a bit strange, really. All a bit of a, you know, in many ways, the perfect send-off for a, a Sid 18-month run that has made no sense at all. What do you think, Rory? Absolutely. Just look where we were this time last year when Vince calls him up on his farm in Arkansas because a warrior had done a warrior because he, he desperately needed somebody for an already booked six-man tag match in Vancouver. And it turns out to be Sid, he comes out of nowhere and the roof comes off the building when he tags in. Four months later, he's WWF champion, being cheered by a New York crowd over one of the greatest workers in the world. And now, <laughs> and becoming champion again after that, as I'll not forget, main eventing WrestleMania. And now here he is, what looks like being his final appearance on WWF television, was uh, you know, clad, in, clad in his civvies at the top of a ramp for about five seconds, genuinely looking ill. He looked in as much as somebody of Sid's stature can, emaciated. It, it didn't look good at all. And that's just a sad one-year story arc completed. But WWF, I'm sad to say, they do have form in terms of letting people go when they might not be 100% health. I seem to remember a certain commentator by the name of James Ross was given the boot in 1994 for the heinous crime of suffering from Bell's palsy. Yes, I know Vince said his contract was coming up anyway, but yeah. But that, 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 that's Vince speak. I'm sure there are many other examples as well. Yeah, so I'm as much as we correctly rag, and that's putting it mildly on Sid's in-ring abilities. My God, that man had something. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it was, but I'd like to bottle it and sell it and make myself a very, very rich man. Yeah, I think you know Sid is always a great what if. Um, the joke I always heard was when, you know, he had his feud with Hogan and Sid Justice and they they were telling him backstage, you know, we want Hogan to endorse you and, and have Hogan give you his boots and, you know, really make a Hogan-Sid Justice team. And he went, you know, Vince, I see myself as a real badass heel just killing people. And it's like there's something with this guy that just doesn't connect to they want to give the world to you and you just don't have either the – investment, the drive, whatever it is, he wants to go play softball. He's, you know, he's not motivated even though he's over. He looks like a million dollars but never really cared to learn to work. He's got the stuff with Arn Anderson in his background. There's just so much about this guy that's checkered. I mean, it's for me, I kind of go good riddance. He certainly was over 
uh, in those series of matches, or at least the the Survivor Series match with Michaels, but I feel like Sid has a limited shelf life before you see... Every, it's kind of like Warrior. It's like once you see the act once, are you going to pay to see it again? I'm not so sure. Yeah. Um, the Sid thing is just interesting, but as I kind of say, it's like a... Like it, 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 it almost is the fitting send-off, isn't it? Like, nothing about Sid makes sense. So, nothing about Sid's ending like this. You know, if he doesn't appear in the WF again, which, you know, I would say it's fairly likely. Um, and we might not see him on, on Nationwide Wrestling anymore, um, in that he doesn't really fit anywhere. Um, but, yeah, like, you remember the high points. You remember Survivor Series for a long, long time. Um, and the guy that made about WrestleMania 13. You know, and then just fizzled out. Like he, he his, his his exit was as bizarre as his, his well his return really. If you want to call it from this time last year. Uh, Rory, uh, anything else from from TV's or news? Yeah, so we, we've seen a lot of it. So I think it's only fair that we talk about uh, DOI and Bariquis and all their rumbles. Jeff, you want to take this one? No. <laughs> Good answer. Um, but that leaves it to me um, then. Go on. I've actually really enjoyed these. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, sorry, I, sorry, I, I, I didn't. <laughs> well, that will come, come, come again. Now you've made me say how much I like this. Thanks very much. Um, I've actually really enjoyed these, uh, these particular rucks. Yes, that's right. I used the word enjoyed talking about Savio Vega and Crush. I'm not counting the match that I had on Raw a couple of weeks ago because that was, that was the pits personified, as you would imagine. But this is, Example of a WWE, I've taken people who were going nowhere fast. Because they didn't need to be in, in, in the nation domination. They, they brought nothing to it right from the very start. And the nation had been rightly re- repackaged and re- rebuilt. But they've given these guys something to actually do. I still would actually like some explanation as to why these gangs have suddenly turned up and what their real character motivations are. Uh, one thing you cannot deny, that when these, two, when these two teams, factions, gangs, get in the ring or are out there in the car park, or ever you hear the DOA come down to ringside and they're there revving their engines, it's uh, it's always one of the most memorable things on the show. Maybe more by accident than the design they wanted to be. It's uh, it's, uh, it's always hot. The crowds are always into it. Whether it's been the US or Canada this month, everyone has enjoyed these eight just beating the hell out of each other. I don't hold many great hopes for the match they're going to have at SummerSlam. But um, they probably deserve that place on the card, I think. It's... Uh, they're only on TV for about four or five minutes maximum at a time, because that's all you want to see. But, uh, damn, it's exciting. Yeah. Um, I, I, I suspect the, the, the SummerSlam thing is going to work right until the point the first bell rings and they're going to start having a match. And then you're going to be like, ah, oh, it's it's Crush and Brian Lee and the, the Blue Brothers and Savio Vega and three guys you've never heard of. Um Jeff, take take this in, in whatever shape or form you like, in whatever long or short form you'd like. Um, I, I didn't hear that last part. I'm sorry. I oh, just just uh, address the the DOA lost Bariqua storyline. Oh. However quickly or slowly you'd like. So I I mean basically for me I I was kind of cringing at some of the things that the the DOA were saying. They were calling themselves the Brotherhood, which instantly made me think of the Aryan Brotherhood, which you maybe don't want to associate with since they're white supremacists and one of the blue brothers already has a lightning bolt tattoo. That's pretty, I don't know, questionable in taste. 
Bariquas, I, I mean, I kind of dig Savio Vega's presentation as a heel. I think he exudes kind of a, a cocky, smarmy charisma at times. Uh, I mean, it's four guys going nowhere and four other guys going nowhere, but you also have the Godwins going nowhere and the Blackjacks going nowhere and the Headbangers going nowhere and not a lot of great workers in that bunch. And, you know, when we talk about trades, Bob, I would have loved to just see them trade their undercard for the, I don't know, WCW undercard because... I don't know. Like, you might get, like, Dimalenko for, like, 30 of the OFs. I trade that. I would trade. I would trade Dean Malenko and Rey Mysterio for all the Bariquos and all of the uh, disciples, and I throw in a Bob Holly. Oh, you'd never get that. No, you'd need you need all of those guys. It would be a body stacking exercise. I do need, it. You need those guys. You need the Goldwins, the Blackjacks, the the Headbangers. Um, well, I'm saving Vince on travel. That's what he's trying to do, anyways, right? <laughs> I've just under, I've just undercut a couple million right there from the budget. Yeah, but you'd have to, you know, like if you're going to make WCW take all of that, you'd have to send them Vader. You probably need to send them Two Cold Scorpio back. You probably want to send Mark Merrow back. He's not going to be back for a couple of months, but just let him be Johnny be bad again. That could help anyone. Um, Sid, yeah. you could send Sid back too with a pair of scissors. Yes, yes, you could do that too. Um, but yeah, like maybe the totality of that might add up to Dean Malenko, and it would probably be a good move for the WWF. But yeah, and, and, and then Vince wouldn't book Malenko good because he's got no personality. Yeah, yeah, that as well, that as well. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not hating this yet. Um, I suspect SummerSlam's going to tick around. And I'm going to start, but at the moment, it's just very, very basic. It's you know. Two guys turn up, two more guys turn up, everyone turns up, they start fighting. You know, the, 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 you know, Brian Lee and, and Crush are getting babyface pops. Um, anything that does that is worth something. Like, that's, that's, you know, that's a pat yourself on the back, you know, go home for the day type achievement. You know, that kind of thing. Anything that what you can work out like that is, is really well done. Um, Roy, anything else? Yeah, one more thing for you to bring us, because it's, um, a bit of a concern of mine, actually, that uh, from September, the, all the in-your-house pay-per-views are going to be three hours long. It kind of ties in with what we just mentioned, that is their roster deep enough to come anywhere close to covering that? Are we going to actually have, is all my enthusiasm for the DOA, be lost for equals thing going to ebb away when four of the matches on every pay-per-view are one of them against another one of them, for example? Yeah. And also, just one more thing as well, if you're making all your pay-per-views three hours long, Yes, I know WCW do it, but you don't have to copy them in everything. And WWF hold the crown jewels of wrestling pay-per-view in WrestleMania and SummerSlam and Royal Rumble and Survivor Series, and maybe even King of the Ring. If you make every event three hours long, the, the, the big five become a bit less big, in my opinion. What do you think? Yeah, I think that was the thing that was level that WCW, when they first started to move to you know monthly three-hour shows a couple of years ago, you know, how do you make things stand out when everything's the same? They made it work. I mean, they've got much better resources to do so, but they made it work. Um, and there was something that I think Dave Meltzer wrote this month about how, you know, like, sometimes if you if you present something as higher value, it actually makes people want it more. Like, you know, how if, if, if you present something as a cheap 15-quid thing, they'll think, ah, oh, it's missable. But if you say it's 30 bucks, it's a three-hour show, like, well, I've got to, I've got to see this, because it's as important as everything else. 
Um, there's some logic to that. I mean, whether it'll hold up or not, I don't know. Um, and you're completely right. We talk about WCW's, uh, WWF's kind of misfiring undercard. Um, that's certainly one. And Jeff, what do you think? Yeah, I think there's something of telling the audience they're getting a, a greater value because now they're getting three hours of action instead of two, and you know more um, more is better always, and you want to give them you know a supersized pay per view even if it costs more. Um, yeah, I don't think their undercard is really that deep. I mean, I love Flash Funk to Cold Scorpio, but he's kind of dead in the water. Um, a lot of those tag teams are just like watching guys wrestle in cement. They don't have a light heavyweight division that's really developed, so it's not like the undercard. I mean, that's kind of where the three hours, you know, could benefit is that you start building guys up who come in on the cheap to try to build their names up from Mexico, from Japan. Um, And, I mean, that might be even where that ECW relationship could benefit WWF because you supplement, you know, 45 minutes of action by putting in a match and a program or something uh, from them. Yeah, um, I just think it's uh, it's probably a logical thing to do. Um, I suppose the big question you're always going to finish on is if Canadian Stampede was an extra hour, how good would the show have been? And I bet we'd have been, at, you know, sixes, sevens, six and a half, seven and a half in that kind of range. I don't, you know, bigger isn't always better. And when you don't have the resources to scale. And that's the thing when I talk about those those resources. One, they had a lot more main eventers, so they had a lot more main events. Um, so they could afford to kind of present shows as being on almost equal billing. But they also had a they invested significantly in their undercard. Um, WWF's gonna have to work a lot to do the same. Speaking of Scorpio, fuck me, one of the one of the sleeper storylines of the last or sleeper stories of the last six months is just how awful they've done with Scorpio. Like laid him with a terrible gimmick. Um, he's gone nowhere fast, either. Uh, Jeff, to, to, the, the same thing, really. Anything from anything that we haven't discussed already that's kind of come from that, that you, you'd like to discuss or bring up from from just, TV's just, the, just the introduction and presentation of the Patriot, which I thought was a little quizzical because, uh, you know, he was just kind of a guy, like a tag guy with Marcus Bagwell in WCW, and you know, Jim Ross was putting over his All Japan tenure, but realistically, it's just like a guy shows up one week in a mask. They call him Del Wilkes on the air, so it's like, why is Del Wilkes wearing a mask if he's the Patriot, if he's trying to shield his identity? It was just a really odd presentation for a guy who, you know, is, is potentially going to be going up against Brett to defend the United States after he's lost to Hunter Hearst Helmsley, and he kind of hasn't really had the best introduction, although it seems like they're doing something with him. I guess, why feud with someone that, is American when you confuse Brett with someone who is America would be the logic in that it's it's the it's the lowest common denominator part of the storyline USA versus Canada we've got someone who has a gimmick already that is just USA um I, I guess is you know Patriots kind of you know won the lottery in a sense and that he, he's walked in in the, at the perfect time with the perfect gimmick. Um, but yeah, Roy, what do you think about his presentation? Yeah, he just sort of appeared out of nowhere, didn't he? He, he, he made his debut uh, in that who's going to be Austin's partner little cavalcade at the, stop, at the top of the ramp on the July 14th Raw. I would wager that a good 90% of the people watching have no idea who he was. And they still haven't really told us an international superstar by the name of Dale Wilkes, okay, whose finishing move looks like it's a 
full Nelson slam. Ooh, scary. Um, and I, I, I would imagine that he has been brought in here relatively short term to A, have some mini feud with Brett and B, just to get a cheap pop if he's around for any longer. But, um, okay, it just seems a bit, we've used this phrase a couple of times tonight, but with good reason, it just seems a bit lowest common denominator rah-rah stuff for me. I was, I was hoping for a bit more than that. Yeah, um, you know, I think he's a decent addition to their, their roster. And I think, as I say, you know, he's, he's arrived with the right gimmick at the right time, which is good. Um, I just don't know that, you know, if you want to make something out of this, there's probably a slightly different way of presenting it. Perhaps the gimmick's not wrong. Perhaps it's just the way they packaged it. Perhaps if they'd have given it a bit more, presenting it as a, a stereotypical Mr. America with some video packages, it would have meant more. Still can. He's a good enough worker. Um, but yeah, I think it's uh, they've got some catch up to do there. Let's say that. Um, I think that's about it. Like in terms of the the, the stuff that stood out to me, I mean, there's, 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 there's the collapse of the ECW thing this month, which didn't replay itself out on TV, which just seemed, you know, I'm not that surprised. Um, ECW don't strike as easy as guys to work with, and again, it's. It's difficult, like, Heyman doesn't want the ECW guys going and, and having back and forth with WCW lower card guys, but WWF lower card guys. The WWF don't want to present these guys anything more than that because they don't own them. Um, and it's like, the only way to do the storyline and pull it off is to go all in, and they haven't quite done that. Um, and, you know, you kind of, you sat there wondering what we were wondering a few months ago, which is what did the WWF really get out of this? I don't know. Um, and that's perhaps why it makes the most sense to to stop it and to stop this month's show uh, a big thank you to Roy McNamara Roy thank you very much my pleasure as always uh, Roy you can be found on Twitter I'm on the Twitter's at RawsDM R-O-R-S-D-M and a big thank you to Jeff Parker Jeff thank you very much for joining us this month oh you're welcome thank you I always enjoy doing this yes I uh I said, you know, I, the the American guy, well, Eric's a bit different, but where, where Jeff and Brian are concerned, I generally like to give them a bit more notice for these shows because, you know, the times are different means we have to plan them out in advance. And I uh, I sent Jeff a message about five weeks ago, just just saying, hey, Jeff, how's things going? Like setting up the the, the discussion, the question mark about doing this much show. And he went, hey, Bob, everything going well. How's things your side? And then the next line simply read, this better be about Canadian Stampede. I'm like, yeah. 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 It, yeah, I don't even think I had the pleasantries. I don't think I. I don't think I was that nice. I just said it better be about Canadian Stampede. Yeah, yeah, you probably were. <laughs> uh, but, you, know, you were. Uh, you, you were on the right track, if nothing else. But uh, yeah, I. Uh, I, I think for a show like this, we, we had to uh, get our man across the uh, uh, north of the border, across the pond, both really north of the border for this uh, for this show. Jeff, thank you very much for giving us some Canadian perspective on Jeff. When is when is this? Let's let's ask the question out of time. When does this show fit amongst? WWF, WWE shows, full stop. Uh, How does that hold up? I mean, it's it's one of my personal favorites. Um, I saw it live. I got goosebumps rewatching it. I think uh, it's definitely in the, my top ten. Uh, maybe it it <laughs> it's maybe a little higher now because some of my favorites had a guy who I don't really watch wrestle anymore, um, like WrestleMania 20's main eventer. So I uh, it's probably gone up. A bit, but it's it's definitely one of the best top to bottom pay per views ever for WWF. It's a four match card, which is you know a tender mercy, I guess. But uh, I love it. Yeah, for me, it's it's a show I've heard a lot about, and I guess when you hear a, you hear so much about a show, you, you, your expectations probably do go in a bit too high. 
Um, to me, it was just a very good show. Um, but you know, it's 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 never that easy to to, to fully appreciate how a show sits kind of twenty years removed. Um, but yes, uh, this is one of four volumes this month. The UFC show is volume number four, a bit like the boxing show from June. We're going to take that kind of mid-August, so it's a bit like that at the moment. Um, but yeah, two other volumes for you uh, at, at release. Volume number two, WCW, looking at the Bash at the Beach show, Dennis Rodman, all the build to, to Luger and Hogan and all of that. And volume number three is our latest trip to ECW. A reminder that if you would like to, we're on Patreon, and for five bucks a month, you can get early access to shows where possible. Uh, or you just like to say thank you for, for our, our contributions to your podcasting world. You can do so at patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20YRS. Links in the podcast description and on our website. Speaking of which, our website, I haven't updated it a lot at the moment. Uh, recently, but, but things will be going up at some point in the next few weeks. Uh, Wrestling21Rs.com, all your links are on there, iTunes links, back episodes, blogs, everything else. Um, that's been about it. I've been Bob Bamber. This has been volume number one of the July 1997 edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. And until next time, 